gonna be legendary, man. Can't wait, man. <laughs> he already like me. I don't know what he got, but I promise. Yeah, you, yeah. I'm not a shock jock, bro. It's only gonna be. Oh, right. yeah, I don't have nothing. Yeah. Count us down, baby boy, please. We count in three, two, one, and we run in our. That's legend. Yeah. And, uh, y'all actually won a, uh, an award, um, the Boss Mag 2009 Ohio Hip Hop Award. Y'all won for that media outlet thing. Man, I don't even know. Yeah. <laughs> like, y'all won. <laughs> he didn't even know he won. <laughs> what you say? Who was it? You won the Boss Magazine 2009 Ohio Hip Hop Award. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> That's legendary. That's legendary. That's legendary. That's legendary. That's legendary. Yo, 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 what's good? It's your boy, uh, Peanut, a.k.a. Dash Resource. I heard my man Stackin' Smith. What's cracking? And we have another legend here. I promise you, I say this every single time we come here, and we have a legend that's no higher than the other one, but this one right here is really special and dear to me because I cannot wait to get the butterfly effect and he's going to really respect us on the day. We got my man, Pastor Pete Matthews, man. How are you today, King? I'm good, man. I really, really appreciate being in this space, man. I'm in inspired by my baby brother Ty Smelly. Now I got a new little brother Peanut. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's what it do. You know yeah. what I mean? Yes. I appreciate it. Respect. I don't know what the hell the butterfly effect is, but I guess I'm about to find out. <laughs> You're going to love it. I promise you. So, so here at the Legendary People Podcast, we like to do this thing where we like to learn about our legends to honor them. So what we start off with is origin. So where'd you grow up at? Uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. Born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. Okay. Yeah. So um, like, what area there to be like specific? So it's, this is always a great question to ask me because depending on who I'm talking to, I could be from Bond Hill mm-hmm. yeah. or I could be from Paddock Hills. Right. I'll let y'all make the distinction, but people out there know what the difference is. Uh, but for the most part, man, I grew up between um, living in the hood and going to private schools. Mm-hmm. And my mother and father uh, worked um, relentlessly hard to try to make opportunities for myself. So. Very fortunate about that, and we'll, I guess you'll ask me a little bit about that a little later. So. Well, we'll get to that right now. So, like, what was the area kind of like growing up? So, so I mean, let me just kind of do it back this way. So, my first childhood memory um, was being locked in a closet. I was locked in that closet because my father had pistol-whipped um, my mother. Uh, and when the police came and got me, I had been kidnapped. Uh, and so my father used to be in Lincoln Heights Zone 15, and as a result of that situation, I grew up with this very interesting um, connection uh, relative to trust, loyalty, and environments. Mm-hmm. So I'm one of those guys. I didn't have to watch the Godfather movie never to have my back in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So um, the environment that I grew up in, I was raised by my stepfather, uh, who was a um, the lead maintenance man at Children's Hospital Herbert Medical Johnson. Center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Pastor Peach, you look. You was like, how'd you know? That? Yeah, here I we go. Yeah, I, I didn't give this dude my my social security number <laughs> to get on this broadcast. Did I? You saw that, did you? Yeah, I, bro. I, like, I interrupted the story. Yeah. Okay, but your face no, told the story. Good. So my uh, yeah, Herbert Johnson, my my uh, my stepfather. Mm. Uh, worked at Children's Hospital Medical Center so long as a maintenance person, the lead maintenance person, that when he retired, um, they paid my mother uh, his regular check every two weeks for three years. Wow. That's the kind of work he put in. So for me, um, I'm honored to be here. My mother was a social worker. We'll talk about the way me and my father biological connected at the end of his life. 
but um, I'm the hardest working people person in show business, bro. Um, one thing I found, um, uh, like connection with your story was, I don't have the same passage as you have per se, but I was raised by my stepfather. So when I first saw that, I instantly like gravitated towards your story to begin with. So, um, you know, like he has a nickname for me and he called you Petey, right? Right. So like, what was that like growing up with your stepfather kind of being there after the troubled story of that? Like, what was your early childhood growing up with mom and your stepdad, which is really dad. Let's I, say dad. Yes, my dad. I, I want to I get something though. All right. So when it happened, when you was locked in the step, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, locked yeah. in the closet, what year are we talking about? I was about? two what? years old when that story happened. So that was my first memory uh, childhood of memory of life. And what what time from what era we talking like seventies? Oh yeah, we in the 70s? Uh, so yeah, we in the the, the mid nineteen seventies. The mid nineteen seventies. So they trying y'all trying to make me old. My, my birthday yeah. is Saturday. Yeah, uh, <laughs> my birthday <laughs> is Saturday. Yes, um, 40, 49. 49. Okay. What, what I'm gonna do? What he do? Uh, uh, dollar sign Peter E Matthews cash out. <laughs> That's what Ty would do. That's what Ty would do. I ain't never done that ever. But I'm here with Ty, so I'm here with Ty, so I'm here with Schmidt. So I gotta do that. Put it in the scrolling text. So I, I, scrolling I ain't never done that before. Put it in the scrolling text right now. I'm here with Schmidt. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Dollar sign. Hold on, hold on. We're gonna put the scrolling text right now. Let me get this. Yeah. So anyway, but growing up in really grew up in the early '70s, you know, my mom was a model. She had the big orange afro. You know, ain't no stopping us by Mac McFadden, whitehead that was always blasting in our Mm -hmm. joint. Yeah. And much like the movie Crooklyn, we grew up with a strong sense that faith and education were paramount to how to make it out this life. And so, um, my church. Um, my parents, and then my extended family, my aunts and my godfather, my godmother, they provided this quilt, man, of this kind of frayed quilt of all these loving people who were broken and brilliant at the same time. Mm. So, you know, I'm just quite fortunate enough to kind of be in that space. But I never, ever forget about, um, you know, the extra touch, the extra hug, waiting in line to make sure every grandmother gets their due because... Um, they raised me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, growing up with a stepfather, to me, um, you know, like it kind of felt like I worked harder to get the love that you would naturally get from like your mom. So, right. was there any inkling of that for you, or was it? So, here my, you know, my, well, my stepfather, you know, one of the things that I I, I can remember um, is just him coming home. So he was the person that led the crews that when the when the helicopter would land on the top of the plane or the cars were too snow deep, he was the person digging out the snow, creating pathways for the doctors and the lawyers and the hospitals to do what they do. Wow. So for me, I remember his work ethic. I remember uh, warming his boots and then taking his feet out of the boots and out of the socks and warming those feet. Uh, I remember uh, making sure um, that it, he used to love mayonnaise and jelly sandwiches. Like, I, you know, trying to make sure that he had what he needed. Mm-hmm. And that kind of instilled a sense of manhood in me mm-hmm. relative to expectations. Now, I didn't get older until I was able to be consistent relative to my behavior and what I espouse. But even as I look back on it now in my mind as I'm sitting here talking to you, um, he set up a standard relative that manhood is really about um, the education of your soul and your experiences mm-hmm. more than just printed words on letters. Absolutely. So, so to, 
Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. No, no, I'm just going to say, so to think that a man who made a conscious decision to be my father, he still mm. took care of those other, uh, my my step uh, brother and sisters, you know, they're, they're family still. They're not Absolutely. like family. They're our family. Yep. But he put me in a private school. So I went to private high school, private college, private graduate school, private postgraduate school, and he modeled that behavior for me. Yeah. So, you know, when I got married again, I was very much emphatically trying to be a part. I love you, Pastor. We ain't going that far yet, though, King. All right? So um. <laughs> we got back up. We still in elementary school. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, man, uh, let me get to your question real quick. Well, well I was just going to ask. Uh, a lot of times, man, fathers back in those days, man, it seemed like that they was really manly men. Like, yes. you know, it was a difference between you didn't share as much in common with your father as it seemed like our generation does yes. now. Like me and my kids, we might listen to the same type music or just seem like we got more in common. Mm -hmm. But it seemed like you was uh, like giving your father, like giving your, your stepfather, like a lot of service. Like you said, you would help him with his boots and uh, kind of feed right. him and make sandwiches and stuff. Was that coming from you or was he telling you to do these things in order to form you into somebody who would be a hard worker huh. and diligent? You know, I think I think he modeled the expectation and then those opportunities presented itself. Yeah. I think that there was not a lot to be said during those times. I was just feeling the need for him as he was feeling the need for us. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think oftentimes, I'm not trying to sermonize, but I think oftentimes we, we, we do so much of this, but we don't set the examples that create the opportunities for service. A bunch of lip service. Yeah. So I think that my, my, my stepfather was, you know, he, he created those venues for me to kind of not just ask him questions, but also seeing him participate in his own healing. He didn't graduate from mm. high school, but that didn't stop him from making sure that we didn't want. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, I think when I, even as I think back on that, he becomes without question larger in depth than he was in life. Right. Wow. So um, I want to touch more on, on, on like your early childhood as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, you spoke on the church influence. Was he instrumental in that as well? Or? No, uh -uh. no, he didn't go to church. Um, this is crazy how my parallels are going. Yeah, no, no. So he, yeah, he didn't go to church. My, my mother and I were raised in the church, but he respected the institution. He respected how it uh, provided me not just a framework to learn about God, but also a framework to learn about how to use my own set of personal skills, interpersonal skills, how to relate to people, how to do some of those things. Um, that would make me conscious of not uh, uh, having favoritisms relative to who certain people, what they drive, what they look like or not. So my stepfather, um, we watched uh, every Christmas Eve, we watched the Pope. He was Catholic. He was emphatic about that. So we used to watch that all the time. Yeah. Uh, that was his one time going to church. But he had enough respect, particularly for my pastor during my uh, middle school and high school years that he would always make sure his whip was clean, right? Mm -hmm. So every year my stepdad had got a new Cadillac. Every year he got a new car. That when he died, uh, half of the Cadillac, uh, not, not the Cadillac, half of the Lincoln dealership, Lincoln Steel Pass. I remember the Ford Lincoln Steel Pass Motor Company. More than half of them were at the funeral yeah. because he had put so much time in. And he put our pastor back in the day, he put him on to cars and was always trying to make sure that he represented. So mm. he was a stand-up guy. 
So, um, so like during your early parts of uh, church, I mean, as a young kid, I mean, of course now, you know what I'm saying, you're older, you're wiser. Was there points where you hated churches also? Because yeah, I st- yeah. yeah. No, no, I still, I'm still frustrated with church. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that for me growing up as a young person, I never understood the rate at which church was able to make change in the community. Right, and so it really used to frustrate me because my biological father was the head of the Black Panther Party in Cincinnati, Ohio. I got this hard-working dad, you know, who works relentlessly for me and my mom. So I'm thinking, if you got a framework and you got a work ethic, it's supposed to equate into the eradication of poverty or homelessness, mm. or we're supposed to be doing things in our community. But then you get older and you feel, you realize that the church is a, is a flawed institution filled with flawed and broken people. Mm-hmm. So you gotta think about how you work with that. But I was very frustrated uh, with church probably. Um, you know, I got real active in church, started preaching in my early 20s, late, eight, I think I started preaching like 18, 19, um, got really frustrated with church because I didn't I didn't understand what the hype was relative mm. to you have this Sunday morning um, almost like you know uh, Milana Coranga who is the founder of Kwanzaa he says that you almost like you see black people go to Mars for three hours on Sunday mm. and then they come back to hell mm. Sunday afternoon so you know but now as I'm older and wiser and thinking about how do you uh, implement theories into real lives? I, I understand that, but it's still just as frustrating. Okay. I, I think maybe what he was saying was not so much as frustrated with the institution of church and uh-huh. like how things are or not happening, but just like as a kid, yeah. was you interested in the most high or did you couldn't wait to church just hurry up and got out because it was taking so too I had long a, in the, in the I had a dope Sunday school teacher I had a dope Sunday school teacher early yeah and he was really uh and he kind of rose up in the ranks with us from like 12 or 13 mm-hmm. so I had a dope Sunday school teacher that made it different but you know I had girlfriends in the church and got kisses on the back steps so <laughs> yeah. I always said ulterior motives to want to go to church too yeah. did y'all did you uh, when you peeped that uh that new uh Andre 3000 verse that he put on yeah. for Don Day. I hadn't heard it. Oh, my heard God. it was good. As soon as we get off camera, I'm going to listen. Yeah, man, yeah, Andre yeah. 3000, man, he's a Martian, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I think, so Andre 3000 was really talking about the dissonance of God and what does that mean and did God uh, create him to be a troubled soul. I think a lot of us go through those existential crises, and I was going through one repeatedly. You know, mm. I'm going through one now in midlife. But the question is, do you have someone to guide you? I was very, very fortunate that a man named Harold Drummer, when I was 10, 12, 13 years old, understood uh, black consciousness, understood the Bible, and was a very morally upright cat. You know what I mean? So I I did not have that significant period of time where I wasn't a part of the church or didn't know about Jesus. Because even when I, this last thing, even when I got started studying other religions, and had a kind of a breakaway from the church in my late 20s, early 30s. I, I, I know all about the Nation of Islam. I've studied it. I named my son Malcolm. Um, but I'm always like, what am I going to do with Jesus? Do you know what I mean? Right. So yeah. that, was, that was very important for my grandmother, and I understand it a little bit more intimately each day that passes. So growing up, your mom was Methodist? or what? Yeah, my mom was AME, so I grew up in the AME church. And your dad was Catholic? Correct. Did, did you ever see a debate between them two, or was never? 
Mm-mm. Those harmonious. Yeah, yeah. My 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 dad, like I said, he watched uh, the Pope on Christmas Eve, and that was good enough for him. <laughs> and he really was a person that kind of put his faith in practice by how he took care of those around him. So, so well, yo, yo, your dad, you mentioned that he was the leader of the Black Panther mm-hmm. Party at this time. Did pops come through? Did, was he a part of your life, or so he he kind of came through intermittently. Um, I think when I, if I go back and use my brain about it, he kind of came through sixth grade, high school. I was, you know, I was an all-state basketball player, so he came around, wanted to be a part of that. When I first started preaching, he did some of that. But it really wasn't until I got myself together and could ask some real questions mm-hmm. that we have a real relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I was with him uh, up until like three weeks before he died. So. Uh, and I started speaking before that, like you had limited motor skills. Like, what does that really mean? So when I when I was uh, coming, I, I went to the second grade. I mean, the kindergarten twice. Part of my problem was the ability uh, to uh, tie my shoes. Uh, had always had a very difficult problem. It was probably some dyslexia uh, there. I was one of the kids that had all the cotton in their ear, mm-hmm. so I probably that slowed me down relative to my hearing. Uh, I'm supposed to have my hearing aids on now, don't have them. But there's all these little mitigating factors that, for me as a typical black child, even at a private school, just puts you at a slight disadvantage. And so my mother made sure that I was at a a school that had small classrooms. I got the kind of attention that I needed. Um, My interpersonal skills kicked in, what I would call at genius level, and allowed me to kind of put the pieces together and make a life for myself. So, uh, like, what was that like where, you know what I'm saying, like, you're going to private school, so, like, but, but like, you're still in an area where you have kids that are going to public school. Pretty sure, like, you still have friends like that. So, how are you navigating these systems of going to school with private schoolers and then coming home and still being friends with neighborhood kids? Well, I think it was very difficult. Um, for me, it was difficult because, you know, once you started hooping, you really didn't see anybody. So we were at the kind of the beginning of the surge of the AAU and -hmm. all that kind of stuff. So I really didn't have a lot of friends. So it's it's interesting for me now um, because, you know, I I went to a predominantly white school. I always dated sisters from some different public schools based on reputation, who you heard or whatever in the Mm -hmm. streets. So I had those relationships. But now as you see people on Facebook, they 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 kicking in with their classmates and all that kind of right. stuff because there was community in school. I didn't have that, mm. so don't you know? Don't cry me a river, but it's been a difficult adjustment as an adult not to have those people that you grew up with that have you also went to school. Connections yeah. with. Wow, yeah. wow! Yeah. I never thought of that. Yeah, man. that's that, you know. So you, there are some trade offs to success, right. or what people would deem as success Perce- anyway. Like perception of it, success. So you coming up? You are you in the church? Pops, Black Panther. Um, I don't what the, the church that you're going to. I'm not sure if it was it a predominantly. It was an AME church. church, so it was a black, black, blacky black church. And the pastor, by the time I got to the end of middle school and the high school, uh, he was a Black Panther from um, Boston, and he was very active in the movement. He went to MIT, and for me. He continued to articulate the bridge for how the church could be created uh, prayerfully as an institution for liberation, mm. as opposed to something that would retard our people to make sure the preacher get a new car. Right. So yeah. he was really putting books 
in my hand and challenging me to begin to think another way. I always thought I was going to be a, a professor of African-American history. You know, thanks be to God. Um, he called me in a different direction. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I always put those things in practice. You know that any, well, better than anybody. One thing that that I know that's huge, man, among Black Panthers and this consciousness, man, of brothers and sisters, mm -hmm. man, is the debate over Black Christ, White Christ, with this influence in this church that you at, like, was was those type of things on your mind as you're coming into you starting to preach at 18, 19? Did you have that type of influence around you or, or what, bro? Yeah, so for me, it's like, um, you know, I was in the beginning as I was preaching, part of me pre being a preacher was in relationship to my own sense of righteousness or right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So not want to get caught up in any drama. But if you live long enough, you don't get caught up in the drama, you go looking for it. You know what I mean? I, I, I know where the name is, where she stay at, you know what I mean? So, so not only do I get caught up in that drama, but now I have this sense of this thing called grace that allows me to look at what I do as an art form. Mm -hmm. So you, you tune and check me out, like words have power, and then I'm able to come back into some of my pre-understanding as a young person. Like I know that uh, black people knew about Jesus way before we came to America, right? Yeah. You check out the Egyptians and the more, I mean, like all that kind of stuff. The, the, so when someone starts talking about the white man's religion, and I, I don't really debate that because I know history. Right. Yeah. So I'll throw that history out there, and it becomes, you know, people get aggravated because I, I'll start listing relative to what, how does your religion, where's your feet? What's the feet of your religion? Mm. How's it doing with addressing poverty? How's it dealing with dealing with uh, homelessness? How's it dealing with addressing fuel security? So I don't. Your Jesus could be as black as Idris, right? Mm. But if it's not addressing those primary concerns, the Bible reminds us that faith without works is dead. That's yeah. hard, man. So, so, um, so after you navigate through elementary school, you're going through middle school. You're still active in the church. Absolutely. Um, Around this time, I mean, like you probably having girlfriends at this point in time. What's that like, you know what I mean, balancing the church and then you still navigating, trying to come into your own yet? Because, like, we're not at high school yet. So you're navigating, trying to come, come to your own, but you're also balancing the church as well. Yeah, so, I, you know, I really, I, this is funny, and I, I, I don't think anybody ever had the talk with me, mm. right? So I had sex for the first time when I was 12, right? Yeah. And everybody, when I had it, um, she was a couple years older. Everybody was kind of egging me on to do it. And then I did it, and then I found out that none of my boys, all my boys were still virgins. Right. <laughs> like, they played me. You know what I mean? They was like, what's it like? What's it die? Da, da, da. What she's look like? You know, so I got suckered. You know what I mean? And so that was, again, like I told you about the notion of loyalty. Yeah. Um, those kind of things really had me kind of looking around and beginning to ask myself questions. Mm -hmm. And so I never really as much struggled with the notion of sex is bad, uh, grace is good, like the whole duality or that whole duality. juxtaposition. For me, when you talk about sex, particularly in our community, for me it's a sin if you don't take care of your babies. There you go. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there, the consequences of that kind of consummation, the psychological terror that we reap upon black women, mm -hmm. for me, is more sinful than the actual 
you act. know, yeah, itself, absolutely. Wow, yeah, like profound. So, so, um, so after you got out, let me get this right. I'm not just trying to say y'all, everybody have 80 oh. babies. Like I'm not, I'm not Nick Cannon. Let me just say that. <laughs> Hashtag I'm not Nick Cannon. You know what I mean? Go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, when you being the first one in your group to get one, they call you Pistol Pete back in the day. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> nah, so <laughs> I got it. Got it. So, so, yeah. so, so after your Pistol Pete uh, days, right? So, um, are you playing ball during middle school? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so you know what I'm saying? Like you stand out. Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, like you get to see basketball ways. You come to yourself. Now you start navigating to going to high school. And now high school is where we all feel like we become a man. Did you have that natural process? Or are you feeling like a man? Because you already done got it out the way. Oh, school. no question. So part of what happened to me in high school, I started varsity as a freshman. And I failed. I failed. Um, I was on academic probation third quarter, fourth quarter of my freshman year of high school. Uh, I didn't get to go to an All-American camp. My mother sent me to a public school that would be renamed Nameless. I was in class with like, 50 other people, and i never forget this. Uh, Shmel, you'll love this. It was hot. It was people everywhere. The dude that sat next to me, he got his bag out. He had a fan. He had a couple towels. <laughs> he had a Walkman. He was, all this stuff, he was getting himself together for class. It was algebra, right? Yeah. He looked at me and said, hey, man, you got a pencil? I will never forget that. <laughs> so like, wait, like, he, he got had a fan. Oh, he had all of it, right? <laughs> he had all of it. So my mother actually, she then picked me up. This is how she was hustling me, right? And then took me to the uh, the private school where I went to school, and I worked with the janitors. Wow. So that whole summer after my freshman year, I was scraping urinal off the wall. I was pulling weeds. I was cutting grass, all that stuff. And I, I didn't want to do that no more. Right. So I came back the next semester, first semester, sophomore year. It was a whole... High school education was a whole nother thing for yeah. me because I knew it at that point what I did not want to do. That is, but my mom. So and so by the end of my high school days, me and the, to this day, really, me and the janitors of my high school. I mean, we they my family. Yeah, they not like my family. They my family. They was the people to give me a couple of dollars. Hey man, what's going on with those books? You know, we would be hustling at lunch, trying to get them some money. You know, shooting whatever. But they my family. My mom had enough wisdom to kind of say, yeah, go ahead. You know, do that if you want to. Yeah. But this is what you're going to be doing for the rest of your shout life. Shout out to Mama Love, yeah, yeah. man. Shout out. Shout yeah. out to Mama. She, she put me on game. That is something that's going to stick in your head of, okay, if I keep messing up in school, I'm going to be here cleaning these urinals. Yeah. It's a and direct payment of where you're going to end up at. And she, she took you to a place where... It was obvious to you that the people no. were worried about the wrong thing. Right. He got all of this other stuff, but don't I never forget that. It's the first did, day of summer school. Never forget that. He had a fan. He had a towel. <laughs> Back in the day, he had a Walkman. Everything. And looked at me in my mug like, hey, man, you got a pencil? <laughs> he got everything but what he needed. You know what's even cooler than that, though, is that you got the capacity to recognize that this dude no. ain't right. Ain't right. No, he, ain't, he ain't doing that. Because <laughs> anybody else just would have been start looking for a pencil jealous because he don't got this. Yeah. No. But yeah, man, that's cool. Yeah. So uh, dur during your years at uh, Seven Hills High School, 
Look, he, he wants y'all to know he did his research. <laughs> exactly. Now, now, now if this was Patricia research. Nut instead of Peanut, I'd be a little concerned. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. So, while at Seven Hills High School, shout out Seven Hills. Shout out Seven Hills for sure. So, uh, uh, are you also engaged in anything else, like such as like the extracurriculars besides basketball? So, I, I love track. I still got the shot putting hundred meter dash record there. I was, I loved acting. I did a lot of Shakespearean stuff while I was there. Mm-hmm. I was. I also wrote in the newspaper, so it really. If I, you making me think about it, I've really kind of come full circle relative to what my life is about. Mm-hmm. Um, by the way, Seven Hills did give me a distinguished alumni honor. Man, I was trying to, man, I was yeah. gonna bring that out later on in the interview. Uh, <laughs> uh, come on, man. Edit. Not a slave. No, no, don't. Hey, not don't. Not hey, don't edit. Not a Cash that Peter E. Matthew. No, <laughs> <laughs> Spin. I'm doing my spin. He, man, teach me, Bro, man. I need this. I need that cash app spelled out for you. Yeah, yeah, so you can, so he, he can really gonna type it in there. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. There we go. Go ahead. So, um, so, so, we are like to ask our legends. So, like, what was that first year of high school? I mean, uh, of college for you? So the first year of college, Denison University. Yeah. First year of college, you're going to tell them about the award I got from there too? You're going to tell them I got the award from there too? See ya? You're going to tell them about the award I won from there too? You go ahead. No, no, no. You, you tell them that. You tell them that. I like, see? He, don't, he didn't know. He didn't know, he didn't know my gift was his gift, my gift, did he? You ain't telling. You ain't put him on. So, no, no, no. So, my first year, uh, first year of college actually blew my knee out. So, my first year of college, I blew my knee out. And really preached my first sermon with a cast on my leg. Mm. Um, I also met my my uh, my son's mother, my first wife there, and was really started the continuation of some of what I'm doing now. Right. Um, but for me, college was an eye opener because it gave me an opportunity to manage and mismanage my own time. Mm. So, so I mean, so like, kind of get into that a little bit, like. What were some of the things that, like, you, I mean, you ain't got to get into great detail of it, but just for the people that's watching that can learn from your experience, what were some of the pitfalls that you fell in yourself? I mean, like, even though. Oh, no, I tell people all the time. I tell my sons. I tell people at graduate school. Shout out to Ashton Dupler, my associate at McKinley United Methodist Church, who's knocking it out the park at grad school. I say, and uh, there's always three things that you should avoid your first semester. One of them is parties, and you can guess the other two, right? <laughs> You stay away from those things. I'm adamant about you staying away from those things because the thing that helped me survive is first semester at Denison, I had a 3.5 GPA. That's a weighted GPA, right? So after I fell in love and fell out of love and did all that other kind of stuff, I only graduated with like a 2.9, 3.0. But imagine if I had started with a 0.35, I would have never been able to move it back up. So part of the pitfalls that I teach people all the time about college is to know the difference between homework and studying, mm-hmm. right? And know that the weighted GPA is essential to your success. That first two semesters of college, you think it's a bunch of games and stuff. If you could just lock it down, those last two years you can be cooking with grease. Mm. Yeah. So I, I learned the hard way. You know, you're falling in love and you not playing basketball, you're getting this new attention that's being the young preacher and you speaking at different places. Mm-hmm. But I really never, to this day, have a trouble of really locking in for large qualities of uh, amount of time to be able to get done what I need to get done 
in ways that, you know, uh, help me flourish and think out ahead of myself. Uh, a lot of times I, I consume myself with activities and stuff. Right. So um, you had a really, uh, like, good childhood influence of right. William, William H. Gray. Yep. Um, and you actually had a friend that was his uh, uh, father, correct? And yeah. So so my godfather, mm -hmm. the guy I talked about before is uh, Ola Vale Bond. Um, my mother, um, her best friend was Barbara Bond. Ola Vale Bond was college roommates with uh, William H. Gray III. Mm -hmm. William H. Gray III um, was, before Barack Obama, the um, uh, celebrated Baptist pastor who was the majority whip in Congress, who later went on to be the president and CEO of the United Negro College Fund. Mm -hmm. So when I was in graduate school, I got opportunity to stand and study with him mm -hmm. and really think about how the role of faith, particularly an institution, can have uh, um, the weight, the mortal gravity, if you would, to push not just a people forward, but also a city and a world. Mm -hmm. So I was very fortunate enough to study with him and grew up with him. Uh, my God uh, brother, his son Justin Gray is my uh, my best friend, so we still hang out and kick it. I just actually, he had a private celebration. I'm gonna keep his secret secret, <laughs> but I just got back from Miami kicking it with my God brother, Justin. Mm -hmm. Let's go. So, you guys can No, no, no. Okay, so, so having a background of you having structure, Growing up, having the mom, shout the mama love, that literally showed you where where you don't want to be. But at this point in time, you you probably had to at least see a little bit with, with when it comes to your congregation and you moving around at 18. Because like now we in the 80s. What was your first? We in the 90s. 90s. Oh, okay. So like we skip yeah. our era of. Excuse me. We about to fight. Respectfully. <laughs> it was in college. <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> so. But you had to see the effects of drug in our community and stuff like that. What was the first sign that you saw that you was like, wait a minute, something is awry? What was the first moment you noticed of the crack era? Well, you know, um, it was interesting to me that my favorite McDonald's in my neighborhood had to leave um, because they were running crack out the, the McDonald's. You know what I mean? That was part <laughs> oh, of what no. they – I mean, that was a big deal, right? Uh, you also grew up knowing that – you had uh, family members or friends who were drug users, mm -hmm. um, and you saw the effect and the toll that it had on them. Mm -hmm. And so you had to make some pretty uh, hard decisions relative to um, what is your drug of choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, um, my, my college girlfriend, she was pregnant. We were in, I, I sent her an engagement ring. I went to South Africa my third year of college center engagement ring. Um, she was pregnant. Um, the, the, the summer going into my senior year, and I got married. And I was in college with a baby and a wife. Hmm. So those that kind of pressure, I mean, it's a lot, right? Yeah. So, But I made a decision to how, try to handle that the best I could. Uh, it ended in a divorce. But to this day, I, I was talking to her. Shout out to Monica. She's probably watching right now. That's one of, you know, it's one of my top five. So um, we make, that's what I'm saying about this thing about sex. I think we, when you put it on a pedestal, um, you are um, setting people up for failure relative to its consequences. Mm -hmm. You know, I still have 
this 26-year-old baby boy named Malcolm that we are in constant communication. And you've got to figure out because he didn't ask to be here. So mm -hmm. those are those things that I learned early on in my 20s about I'm looking at this baby crying. If I don't do something, then uh, he's going to look at me a certain way. Right. So that was um, some of the effects. And I have some friends who had kids at similar ages, but because they ch made other choices around drugs, gangs, not going to school, not living into what they needed to become, they've got some pretty um, uh, anxious relationships between their kids because when you need, when your kids need you the most and you can't produce, mm. yeah. that's yeah. on you, right. right? And that's why for me, you know, school over streets was so important. Mm. So that's a great question. So um, also, so you traveling to Africa for the for the very first time. I mean, like that had to be a, like a monumental thing for you. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So summer, uh, uh, fall of nineteen ninety three, the African National Congress, the election of the party of Nelson Mandela, um, was getting ready to have black people vote in their first non racial free elections. Mm -hmm. So I joined something called School for International Affairs and spent uh, a semester there learning Zulu, learning about history of African culture and religion, studying at a local church, mm -hmm. and working in the townships. I remember uh, meeting Mandela one time. I remember when he walked into the crowd. I had never you know, the, the ground was kind of shaking mm -hmm. in such a way. And that's when I really first became in love with Stephen Bantubico. So Stephen Biko was kind of like a revered um, black nationalist mm -hmm. um, in South Africa, more like a Malcolm X of genre, mm -hmm. if you would. And so that's uh, that time was left an impenetrable mark on my mind. Um, when I was here for a couple of years, um, I, I've taken two groups of students from United Theological Seminary uh, to back to South Africa to make that connection. Mm -hmm. You met um, Nelson Mandela? Yeah. How was it? I mean... <laughs> no, I mean, I. so there's probably been three times in my life where I don't remember. Like when I met Nelson Mandela, Hillary Clinton, uh, and Bill Clinton, by the way, at Mr. Gray's funeral, all I remember was buzzing in my ear. Yeah. Like, so I can remember what they said. But I was just so in awe. Yeah. I don't yeah. just, you know, because the, the, their reputations, their achievements, all that kind of stuff was there present for me. I wasn't, I wasn't there long enough to be able to detach. But I guess the thing that was so special about um, Mandela was how gentle he was with mm -hmm. everybody. Yeah. You know, how compassionate he was with everybody. Right. I remember, again, at Bill Gray's church in Philadelphia. Shout out Bright Hope Baptist Church, Shout Philly. Out. Shout out. Um, uh, Maya Angelou came to speak for the church anniversary. So Legend. She, he, uh, Pastor Gray, Uncle Bill, called me and said, uh, Petey, mm -hmm. uh, Petey, go get Maya. So I didn't know who he talked. He said, go get Maya. So she was in his office. And so I'm like this close to Maya Angelou, and she's like, yes, baby. And all I could ask oh, was, what was Malcolm X like? That's, mm. the only, that's like the thing that came out of my mouth. Yeah. And she started crying profusely, like tears, snot, just everywhere. And I was like, oh, my shit. Oh, shit. You know, I don't, you know, I'm about to mess I, up this yeah. whole thing. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. So I ran in the bathroom. It was drying her face off and hugging her. 
And she looked up and said, Malcolm was so funny, baby. She <laughs> yeah. was so funny. Yeah. She got herself together, <laughs> walked out. Right. Wow. So a lot of times we talk about legends, you know, we really forget that these people are human, mm -hmm. that these people really had to overcome ridiculous odds while putting their own demons in place mm -hmm. and still, you know, reach for greatness. Right. Like, you know, you start out selling T-shirts, then you move to crowns. Now you got a TV podcast, you know. Right. Those are the kind of things that people really don't forget mm -hmm. while you battling baby mama drama, while right. you battling bills and vendors and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. It takes a lot of courage to do that. Right. So, you know, when I think about different people that I've met in history who I consider a legend, I'm really in awe of their just splendid humanity. Mm -hmm. It's broken, it's frail, it's precious, but they keep going at it. Right. Um, uh, it's one thing I want to mention also was because there's this new, I don't know where it came from, uh, Generation Z, if you want to call it, where they have this notion of that we didn't all come from Africa, which I like. I feel like, I mean, if life started in Africa, everything came out of Africa. But so to me, it's a lot of things that's like in our tradition that are identical, such as when you say you point out for your dead homies, that's called libation. You have different stuff like that. Like um, uh, I saw some girl laying out crystals in that third. Like that's a part of our tradition of of doing things. Is there something that you saw when you was in Africa that was like so familiar that it's like the beauty of the women? <laughs> hey, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, black women are beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just undeniable. Like mm -hmm. their skin, uh, the way they interact, the way they move, the food. It's sensual, it's spiritual, yeah. and it is, you know, you know. It like felt like Mary. home. Yeah, and it's just beautiful. Yeah, I, I did I did wonderful when I was in school and everything except the language. I didn't, <laughs> I was too busy and too preoccupied in South Africa <laughs> to make my Zulu class on time, but I, you know, <laughs> I enjoyed it. Yeah, man, that's dope. But I think part of what we, we forget is, is the, uh, and, you know, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but our so it's not just the language and the culture and the clothes that have been colonized. Our soul has been colonized, mm. right? And so we got to really decolonize our souls relative to when I'm in Africa, what we miss is the way they interact with their ancestors mm -hmm. or the way they make time for their grandchildren right? or how we celebrate things that are not monetary, right? No one's as, as preoccupied with clothing and cars and things of that nature. If they are, it's because it's the import. You know, I, I was with the um, the ambassador of Togo once, and he says, you know what the, uh, the number one export in Africa is? He said, corruption, mm. <laughs> right? And he, they, he was calling lobbying corruption, yeah. right? That we, we export corruption there, and we take people and we colonize their souls, right? So right. like Carter G. Woodson says, you know, the most powerful thing in the hand of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. You know, if you don't have to worry about them going to the back door, they'll make a door for themselves, mm -hmm. you know? Right. And so when we, we see that all the time in our neighborhoods where people's souls are so intertwined to market culture and the buying of stuff mm -hmm. that they, they go out of their way to place themselves in chains. Right. So when I'm in Africa, I'm seeing people, you know, they recognize that they don't have, but their sense of self-worth is not dependent upon that. Right. So. So. Uh, sorry, yeah. 
I mean, South that makes Af- sense. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. but I, I, South Africa does share this commonality with America as being colonized by the British. And what Nelson Mandela was in prison for was pretty much just trying to buck that trend and stand up and fight Part-time. against being oppressed. And so even though they had been colonized by the British and English and same type of similar situations with segregation and uh-huh. uh, apartheid, it seemed like that they still had a better grip on their sense of self-worth mm-hmm. uh, compared to Americans. Yeah, you know, Black I th- Americans. I, I think the, the thing, too, is a numbers game, right? There are so many um, Africans relative to they are the numeric majority yeah. in South Africa. So there is a sense that um, uh, the colonialism is not thrown at you in ways that's distorting the, you know, the constant reality or the constant recognition of who you are mm-hmm. and what you mean to your family. Yeah. Right? You know, yeah. we got these things that we can't get off of. We got right. television that we can't turn off. Like, these, all of these distractions. So one of the things that I think that happens, that's, that's happened in uh, America, is that we have found a way to privatize everything. Mm. Yeah. Right? So everything has to have some kind of numeric currency. And while you're doing that, you kind of, you know, take a little bit of the soul out of it. Yeah. yeah. Take a little bit of the soul out of it. Mm-hmm. And so when what people forget is um, they forget that uh, Margaret Thatcher called Mandela a traitor, right? We forget that Nelson Mandela had a personal relationship with Muammar Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. We forget how Nelson Mandela on his tour uh, after he was elected president, spent some time with Fidel Castro. Right. You know, like we forget that Mal- uh, you know that Nelson Mandela uh, was very much uh, for an all-inclusive form of government, but it was deeply centered in this notion of um, Pan-Africanism, Pan-Africanism that kind of came up from the guy Kwame Nkrumah, who was the first um, president of Ghana. Pastor P, what is Pan-Africanism? So Pan-Africanism, I thought was yeah. So Marcus Garvey, Kwame Nkrumah, um, there are a lot of people. If you look at Jomo Kenyatta, it it is a sense that your view of the world stems from an African perspective. Yes, Mm. and it's not limited to um, America or Jamaica or Africa or the Caribbean or the Aborigines in Australia. Mm. That there is a sense that there's a worldview by which you can understand what it means to be human as akin to what it means to be African and black. Not either or, but both and. Yeah. So speaking of Pan-Africanism, th- did that change your perception when you came back to America? Absolutely. Because I'm pretty sure you went one person, came back a different person. Absolutely. Wh- who was the person that left and who was the person that came back? I think the person that left was really uh, seriously wanting to be a popular preacher I think the person that came back uh, really wanted to be a committed activist. Mm. So you know, uh, the, you know, because you get don't get it twisted. Some of the 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 notion of who I the the adulation, the adulation I was getting as a basketball player, I was getting the same as a preacher. Yes, and it was hard to distinguish between the two. Mm-hmm. No yeah. one's sitting me on a couch every week, though I am on the couch now every week. Black man, get a therapist. Yeah. I've been telling Todd to get a therapist for a long time. Um, he called you for that. Shout out for therapists. <laughs> he called you for you that. You are my therapist. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. What are you talking wait, wait. about? 
Wait, wait. I heard a notion. Wait, wait. I was on God, he mean that too. <laughs> yeah, wait, I heard a joke before. It said therapists are for people who go talk about people who need therapy. Is that true or not? No, man. We talk about that later. But therapists are someone that chiropracts your soul. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You got to get your soul in alignment, and you and you. No matter how smart you are, everybody needs help. Yes. Yeah. Everybody needs, I think, needs a trusted voice outside of them to tell them when you're getting raggedy and trifling. Yeah. Mm. Now, Jesus was one with the Father, so I can trust Jesus was understanding the voice that sat outside of them. I ain't met nobody else like Jesus, you know what I mean? Yeah. So we got to think about how we, how we kind of live into that space of knowing that it's not just okay. Shout out to uh, Charlamagne the God for having black men talk about mental health. It's yeah. more than just okay, it's necessary. Right, yeah. It's necessary. So uh, after you come back from Africa, mm -hmm. what's your next plan? Because you are now a new, renewed person. Well, I'm laughing, remember, I ran for student, I was the president of my <laughs> black student union, I got my girlfriend pregnant. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so all that, I had to get a job, go to school, you yeah. know, so all that stuff kind of came. What's the first job after college? like? So my first job at the college, I was working at a church an hour away from Princeton Theological Seminary. So I was in school full-time. I thought I was in school full-time, managing an apartment with my, my wife and my baby. So it was it was very, very tight. Now, yeah, I, we I, laugh at that all the time because we didn't have nothing. Now, 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 I have a question. Now, when you say working at a church, what does working at a church mean? Because to me, I think a church is a place we're going to worship. Right. So I was the youth pastor at a place called St. James. Uh, Amy Church in Newark, New Jersey, which was about an hour away from where we lived in Princeton, mm -hmm. New Jersey, and I was the youth pastor there while I was in uh, while I was working, um, going to school full time. Okay. So it was just enough money to put a couple of couple scraps on the table while trying to go to school and make sense of it. Okay. So like now you're navigating the the yeah. wife, new kid, working, school, and school. There has to be somewhere where it's like, you want to, because to me, if I got overwhelmed with stuff, me personally, I was like, I want to go do something just to feed myself. Like, what were some of your positive coping mechanisms of having to deal with all of that? I didn't have any. And so I got, I was, I got caught in an affair my second year of school. Um, my wife and baby left me and I started in counseling the first time. So my three year school process became a four-year school process, and I began to kind of participate in my own healing. But that mm -hmm. was that was hard, you know. You come home one day, everything and everyone's gone um, because they needed to take care of themselves. And all this veneer, all this, you know, Ivy League school, youth pastor work, all that stuff didn't amount to nothing if I wasn't being pregnant, to, uh, present to that wife and that baby. I, I got I got a question for you, bro. Uh, now, I do respect the fact that, like, we are married and we in relationships right now, right? You married? I feel, yes. I say, I say I'm committed in a relationship. Oh, see. Okay. See, see, I put him All in. right. But, but. <laughs> not not, not to take away your point now, Smith. <laughs> I'm rapping now. I'm see, shook. See, okay. No, don't mess with me. All right. All right. But <laughs> this, this is my question. Uh -huh. We see so many families uh, kind of come apart. By, by infidelity, mm -hmm. uh, somebody stepping outside of their marriage, especially men, um, in order to be with another woman. Another woman. Uh, 
with the Bible, there are verses in the Bible that allow men to have more than one wife as long as they don't start to neglect their first wife and start just doing everything for the new wife that they have. Am I so so what I'm what I'm asking you is or proposing. Is, yeah, he's trying to make me Nick Cannon. Is he trying to make I'm me Nick Cannon? Okay. I'm I'm saying Is he trying to make me Nick Cannon? I'm I'm saying like, like is society causing relationships to break up by setting up rules that the most high didn't even ordain for us to follow. Mm. Because these families are being broken up because men are being dishonest about uh, dishonest with their wives about things and I, I don't know if it's necessarily uh, it's it's not like you didn't love your your woman anymore. You didn't lo- it wasn't like you didn't love your wife anymore, but you did do something that was dishonest to her. Mm. And is society causing these type mm, of... I, um, I, I, so I think, you, you see so, my question, though? Yeah, I think a couple of things. When I, so I do marital counseling. I do three things. And in 28 years of min- ministry, I've never had a couple that I married get divorced. Yes, Knock on wood. But I, but I yeah, think I that the three things that I talk about is communication, commitment, and Christ. Right, and I think the biggest thing that men don't um, allow women to do is to make up their own mind and make their own decisions. So if you got to do something that nobody knows about, or you got to creep and do it, or something like that, you you put yourself uh, in the firing lane to live with a whole bunch of consequences. Yeah. Wow! Yeah. And so you know, I've experienced that on more than one occasion. Um, because, you know, I was selfish or whatever, you know, and I think a lot of men, uh, as opposed to having this external courage to fight our oppressors, got to figure out how they lift some moral weights and find some internal courage to get stronger and have the conversation. If that's what you want to do, then you need to have that conversation. Mm. Right. I, I seen a Facebook post yesterday that was interesting, and it said, uh, you lie to one woman and tell another woman the truth. Or you, you lie to your woman and tell the side woman the truth. Which one do you care about more? Mm. Next I don't have the answer. I look at the past. I ain't got <laughs> the answer. Man, interesting question. Okay. All right. No, back to I, back. I mean, I think we I could talk. Law, that. No, I, I think we could uh, talk about Eurocentric norms, Afrocentric norms. Yeah. I think mm. the biggest thing, you know, relative to when I was in the Congo, I've, you know, I've been to the Congo three times, and a, and a bishop told me that uh, the notion of pension in Africa is set around families. So homosexuality is not an ethical or moral thing to them. They're talking about the perpetuation of their own families. And that's what pension looks like, right? Mm. So again, I think there are all these different types of norms, but we live, you've made a conscious decision, we have all made a conscious decision to live in a Western space where there's some expectations and some norms relative to behaviors, and you can't get mad at someone if you have not communicated your want or desire to do something different. Exactly. That's, that's what I was talking that's about. Tough. That's, that's what I was talking about, you know, the emotional courage. What are you gonna, What books you going to lift to prove to your woman that that's okay? You know what yeah. I mean? What lifestyle are you living? What fifth income do you have to <laughs> right. make sure right. that she knows that you're not just trying to get you another piece. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. So I think that's a whole nother uh, 
conversation relative that people are finding, you know, a lot of justifications to simply do what they're going to do anyway. Mm-hmm. So, so, is that... Yeah. Nah, I mean, no, I agree surprised. with everything you said is right, yeah. 100%. I wish you would, like, watch, like, the last 30 minutes of uh, of uh, the legendary handshake of Coltronic because, yes. to me, he kind of broke it down in a way. I mean, it'll probably sound like a funny name, but Coltronic, <laughs> uh, Mr. K-Red, he talked about his lifestyle being an alternative lifestyle, and he says... Off top, he tells people, this is what I'm into. If you're not into that, then you I'm, know, good. I, I'm good. He, he he won't even court a woman that's not into his lifestyle. And I said that is very respectful, and that is a way that I could see that working out for him in the future. Probably not at the – I mean, maybe to his detriment. He may not get the woman he would want I mean, I, paper, I, I think that there has to be some decorum to it all. Like, you know, it, it can't be just – and this, I'm I'm talking about how I'm talking to to pastor, like it's just a little yeah, different a and a little right more structured and organized. <laughs> but let's go to the next. Yeah, hey, coming back from Africa to turn into this. <laughs> if you don't like it, go live in the Congo. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so 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 now you're going through your first uh, counseling sessions. How do those go for you? I mean, is it like are you faced with new information that? You find combative, yeah. or is it? No, I think I remember my first counseling session. I was um, I was so overwhelmed because that was the first time I had gained like thirty pounds from playing ball. So my my counselor was listening to me for like 25, 30 minutes, and she said, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." I said, "Yes, ma'am." She said, "So your wife and your child left you. Your stepfather who raised you just died." Your grandmother is on her deathbed. You're failing out of school. She said, I'm going to let you be fat for a little while longer. <laughs> right? Wow. So, you know, the biggest thing that for me about counseling, and it still is to this day, is to come out of a place called denial. That's in Africa, not in your soul. You feel me? Denial. Yeah, that's denial. a bar. Yeah. That's a bar. Yeah, you know what I mean? That's a bar. <laughs> Pastor you know? man, you kind of smooth there, Pastor <laughs> Kind of smooth there. Yeah. But so, so, so um, to me, when I'm faced with a bunch of things, I go into this place I call it like a dark place where I go into this place until I figure out a roadmap to get out of it. What was the first thing you did when you were confronted with all of these things going on? Because for what you just stated was a one thing, one thing you named was devastating to one person. So go through multiple things like what do you what do you block first? Uh, you got a barrage of punches coming at you. What do you block first? I think the first thing that you block is the blows you keep throwing at yourself. Mm. You know what I mean? And so you've got to be honest with yourself and permit yourself to be human. And once you become human, then you can respond to new information. Mm. Right? So I stopped walking these tight ropes with no net underneath. And so that's not me uh, justifying my behavior, my future behavior, whatever. I've just got to be humble enough and honest with myself and as I'm living my life, I'm trying to be as, you know, not just as clean as I can, but as clear as I can. <clears throat> Here's another bar for you. I was telling somebody today, a lot of people uh, confuse my confidence with clarity, my clarity with confidence. <clears throat> I got a lot of clarity about my life now. Yeah. And people right think, yeah. and people think that I am overconfident. I'm just clear about what is what is going on because I'm I've done enough of my own self work. To mm-hmm. see what's the deal. Right. Yeah. 
So <clears throat> stop swinging at yourself first. Mm-hmm. Recognize that you're human. And make sure that your, you know, your niche, your knit of people around you can not just appreciate your humanity, but they celebrate it because they're working through the same things you're working mm-hmm. on. Yeah. So you got to have some people that don't judge you. It takes you a while to get there, though. And you might figure out that you're going to lose some close people to you because they really weren't praying with you. They were praying on you. Mm. That's a bar. Mm. That's a bar. Yeah. That's a bar. Yeah. So what was your first sign that you were coming out of that dark place? Um, If I was to be honest, man, I've been in this perpetual um, dark place for a long time. It was really, you know, I got a lot of clarity after my biological father died later on in life um, because I stopped trying to please somebody that wasn't present. Mm -hmm. You know, I stopped trying to chase after ghosts that weren't chasing after me. So part of my, you know, my newfound, I would say, enlightenment is to be okay with the process. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to be celebratory over one particular event. Uh, I got to really humble myself to know like, for instance, and I'll just share this. Um, this summer, after I got that award from Seven Hills, I then got another award from Denison for Alumni Citation Award. Man, I celebrated. I ate so much food that I wasn't supposed to be eating. <laughs> Did all that crazy stuff. You know, like in a 36, 48-hour period, I had my first vertigo outbreak this summer. I fell down some steps. <clears throat> and so for like you know, five or six weeks, um, I went from being celebrated for my body to being celebrated for my mind to now not having either of them work for me the way I wanted them to. Wow. Man. And so, hey, man, this summer I've slowed down in ways I've never thought about before mm-hmm. because I've allowed myself to be human. I'm not a right. machine. Yeah. And so when I go to therapy now weekly, we are really, you know, untangling some cords and not just letting them hang in the fray. Man, we cutting them things mm-hmm. and throwing it away. We we untangling some, you know, cutting them things and throwing it away, which gives me now a sense of courage as a 49-year-old on Saturday, as a 49-year-old to live into real live relationships, to mm-hmm. be present. And, you know, this is for Todd, as for you too probably, to know that no is a complete sentence. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. That means well, something to me. And, and so, uh, you don't know nothing about what that meant to me. You don't know what that is meant for me. But I, I, like, I'm sure you. We talk how, about how often. <laughs> I'm dead, like, <laughs> how often do you need to tell yourself that? Because when I'm thinking about you, yeah. man, the enormous pressure that you would have to be on to. I mean, being a pastor, man, the reason why the Levitical priest didn't have to come up with their own portion of land is because, man, to me, a pastor is the most important job in the world because you are actually leading people uh, spiritually to a better place and making humanity as good as it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. And so for a, a pastor who is actually doing the right thing, they deserve whatever it is that they're going to get. I mean, they deserve to be 
just as wealthy spiritually, mentally, physically, mm -hmm. whichever way. But they deserve their wealth to me. Uh, and I know that a lot of people probably have trouble with pastors getting any money. Like, but this job that you've taken on, bro, mm -hmm. like it's so major. And it's not just leading people down this spiritual path to the most high and to what ultimately will be something great for them, mm -hmm. even if it, in the afterlife or whatever. It's people are coming to you with their earthly problems nonstop. Like you got to. You 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 basically have to get people out of all type of jams that you don't got nothing to do with. So how is that pressure to be a pastor? Everybody's everything. Everybody's go to God. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and no matter what time or day or night, they come in for you. So um, I think the thing that has especially prepared me to be in Dayton, fourth poor city in America, is to have failed spectacularly a number of times, mm. to to have been fired, um, to have been divorced, to have you know all these things that where I failed. It takes the pressure off me to re uh, to redefine success. And so when you come to McKinley, who four years ago had uh, thirty nine people uh, in its attendance, now well, right before COVID we were over two hundred a week. Um, where we had about $1,500 in the bank. Now we've got a, um, close to $100,000 with our different businesses that we do. You know, we do that not to list out those numbers, but I list those numbers out because we're convening spaces and what we call it, making humanity human again. Right. And I'm not in control of the space, right? I literally have a, uh, a young white boy run my uh, social service center, right? We really have blacks, whites, rich, poor, gay, straight, all of that. And all I'm doing is uh, reflecting my own brokenness and showing people where they can come up and get some of theirs, mm -hmm. right? And I think for me, I don't feel as much pressure as I would normally because, and I, you know, the creator said this to me not too long ago, and I'm not a, a big person that said God said this or God said that, but this is for you too. And I said it in my staff meeting. Your, my foundation is strong enough for the next shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. yeah. My foundation is strong enough for the next shoe to drop. So if somebody finds me doing something I'm not supposed to be doing, I think that I've lived with enough authenticity and transparency mm -hmm. where my church would forgive me, my you know, my community would forgive me, and we would continue to move on because I have not projected myself to be this person person. Yeah. God does speak to me, and he speaks to me regularly, but I have not offered myself up uh, as a pimp but as a pastor. Right. Yeah. So um, if that makes any uh, sense. To me, I love dualities, right, such as like how you said, um, you know, like life is about dualities, right? Like you can use a knife to prepare dinner for your family, you can use it to kill. Pastor is no different than that. You know what I mean? Because I mean, we can look into like you know what I'm saying your right past and 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 see that you know what I'm saying like you've had times where right. you fell from grace. Right. But to have a mentor such as like a Leon H. Sullivan, right? Um, you have that, and then you also became the vice president of the foundation. Right. You also won a a an award for it as well. How did that feel to 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 have that as a mentor, become the vice president of the foundation, and then to win an award in his honor? 
You know, I think that there are some giants that uh, that tie their shoes the same way. So when you win an award like that, you feel good about it. You want to be recognized. But even as I won that award, uh, I was in between coming out of my AME church experience and moving to my Methodist church experience because there were some things about my former church I didn't want to be privy to anymore. Mm-hmm. So I still had this hunger inside of me that wanted to continue to grind and and convene and create spaces for other people to participate in own healing. So when you mention someone like Leon Sullivan, who spent 50 years in one pulpit, for me, that is a testament not just to his charisma, but also his personal conviction of being true to that one particular community mm-hmm. and that area. Yeah. We've got to figure out as young kings uh, what are we good at and how do we dig deeper as opposed to wider? And right. so, I, you know, to be mentioned in the same breath with uh, Leon Sullivan says, I was beginning to understand what it means to have a singularity of purpose, right? That you, you when you really lock in on something, you're really allowing mm-hmm. the creator who is feminine, she, you know, Holy Spirit, to lock in and empower you in ways that you would not see normally. But if you got all these opportunities, you know, you, you want to be this. But if you really like digging in deep, mm. you're the builder of an institution, which takes, which is a lot harder than building a brand. I want to ask you more on that point there, because what you said right there is something I always felt in my heart. Like even when I went to church, I heard about the father, the son, the Holy Spirit. I'm like, you can't have a son without a woman involved. So who is the Holy Spirit? Yeah, I think the Holy Spirit, uh, it, it, if you look at the uh, the Greek, it, it's, it's definitely female energy. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I don't have any problem saying that. I'm probably going to lose some members saying that out loud, but, you know, just do the research. I, I, I've always felt that way as well, but go ahead. I want kind of like to build on that note, too, uh, when it said, let us create man in our image and in our likeness, and then male and female was created. Does that kind of speak to what you was, some that vibe, yeah, too? Some of it. You know, I'm not a biblical scholar, but there are some really um, – um, reimaginative interpretations of the text that people don't just look at the text for what it says on the paper Mm -hmm. but also understand the culture and the context by which those things are happening so you know if you pick up mud uh in a a certain part of africa that person is going to be resembling what the mud is right 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 Right. so i mean so 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 some of those things make sense if you listen to me on sunday we talk about the decolonization of our souls. What we're talking about is not um, only the fact that um, Jesus came against Sadducees and Pharisees for the kingdom of God. Jesus was upsetting um, a physical order, a profession right. that people have been studying. And here comes this guy named Jesus with these fishermen and these tax collectors talking to people who have been studying something for a long time there is a necessary battle that's going on in the scripture and for us to not admit that that might happen in our own lives we're not doing ourselves a disservice right yeah jesus says in this life you shall have tribulation yeah it's two things about um about to me i'm an observationalist right so to me like when smed just said um you know create men in our own image right I'm an observationalist, right? So I look and I see that, I mean, through the studies, you'll see that, you know what I'm saying, ovaries are just 
test put 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 up in there. Yeah. Men have no use for nipples at all. I know it's a silly way to go, but if we mm-hmm. are made in the image of the creator, then why do we even have use for so so like that's one thing also and then like another thing that I saw that was profound when I talked to Smith was he said that you will see the Bible differently if you envision the people of that time and who had to be the people of that time. I'm not trying to separate anything like that, but I'm saying it, it gives you a different sense of the word. It made me read it different. It made me look at the other names that are added in. Just like, I mean, to me, I kind of put a like a side of caution when I hear the J's in the Bible, knowing that it, they couldn't exist dur- like during that time. You know what I mean? So how do you balance that duality knowing that you call him Jesus, knowing his mom didn't call him Jesus also? Well, I think, you know, for me, I, um, part of, you know, the gospel according to John talks about in the first chapter, and the word became flesh. That when you, for me, when you preach a sermon, it has to be incarnational. Mm-hmm. It's got to have some dirt on it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, the church is God's, the church is, for me, um, God with skin on it, yeah. right? Imagine Jesus, you know, having to have skin, having to do some of the things that you and I were able to do. And there's a thing, and I'm going to use a couple technical terms. It is an exegesis. What is the history and the culture and the politics of the time that comes out of the scripture that makes you a better storyteller? And then what is the eisegesis? What is your junk that you put on the scripture? Right. And a lot of people have been uh, led astray for centuries, particularly people on the margins, because we've listened to a lot of people you know, uh, eisegete the text and put their own cultural lens, their own spin on it, mm-hmm. as opposed to dealing with the weighty matters of how what it's going on and pull it out. And that's easy to do when you come in in the era of globalization, coming out of the 1960s, going into the 70s, jobs are not what they used to be. The church became an ATM. Now, it became an ATM because you got to keep the lights on, you got to pay the choir, you got to do all that kind of stuff, right? But you got to be very careful about how you spend your time because just like I was looking at my stepfather, my son is looking at me. Mm-hmm. You know, my son called me yesterday, 26 years old. He said, Dad, what you tripping off this year for your birthday? I said, what? <laughs> What you talking about? He said, every year, Pop should be acting funny. Like, you get real <laughs> locked in around your birthday. And I just, I was touched by that, right? Because he's paying attention. Yeah. Yeah. Even when I don't know he's paying attention, yeah. right? And I'm saying the cool. same thing with my son is doing that. People are doing that relative to their pastors, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Pastor They're paying Pete, attention. So, Thank you, you finally yeah. get, you, you get your own church the first time. Man, I mean, I know you had to be excited, bro. Won't you kind of take us through the night before your first sermon, if you remember? Wow. So, and yeah. preaching so, in your own church. Or, or wait a minute, Let's, let, let me get you actually getting your church. Acquiring it. Getting the church, and then after you got it, how you about to deliver I'll make you laugh because I'm doing something I've never done before. Yeah. I preached in my first church fall of 1999. mm and I didn't have a musician. Yeah. I didn't have a choir director. And my first Sunday was my girlfriend, who's a, a, a born and raised in Dayton, Ohio. Shout out to her. Yeah. Shout out. And um, it was my mother, my girlfriend, and eight other people. And we sang the first uh, song a cappella, no music. 
But mm -hmm. then um, because I was trying to be hip, I, I had the What's Going On, Marvin Gaye. Yeah. yeah. And I played that for the Sermonic Selection. So I did that. I, I preached a series of sermons using Marvin Gaye, right? Yeah. But, you know, the anointing of God on my life, thanks be out to God, is that by the end of that sermon series, I had a lot of people there. I had a musician, and we was rolling because I wasn't afraid even then to be myself. Mm -hmm. I'm laughing about it now because this is the first time 20 years later I'm doing that series of sermons again. Wow. You just made a shirt for you, Marvin Gaye. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Coming so, full circle. Yeah, so I, I've never preached that series of sermons again, but I'm doing it now. Wow. For my man. very first sermon series. So you're turning 49 this year? Saturday. Saturday, 49. Yeah, somebody sent me four, Somebody sent me $4.90, by the way. <laughs> there we go. Hey, 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 let's go. That's pretty cool. Keep on going, y'all. Keep on going. <laughs> four, four and nine is what? Four plus oh, nine is how much? 13? How y'all doing that for real? Well, do, yeah. Well, thirteen, thirteen comes to four. So this year, bro, you should have great foundation. This will be a foundational year mm -hmm. for you, bro. Uh, mm. Structure. Yep. A lot mm. of organization probably Absolutely. coming your I way. I received that, man. Yep. I yep. received that. I think that that'll definitely be, that. show itself for you, bro. I appreciate that. I, I received that. What thing that, I like about? Oh, oh no, 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 go ahead. Uh, one thing I like about you is, like Francis, uh, like you're critical, and you also. You know what I'm saying? Like you speak highly of people. So you spoke about Nelson Mandela. You also spoke about how, you know, you were critical of how he dealt with Omar Gaddafi and things of that nature. You also were the same way about Barack Obama. You said you were proud, you took pictures with his cutout, everything like that, but you also was uh um you know, like critical of him on how he dealt with Israel when when he said like, you know, like he refused to sign or whatever. Um <laughs> I'm in that bag, okay. I, told, I was overprepared for this one, but where do you think that foundation comes from? To where you can literally love somebody but still be critical of them? I think that's I think that's the essence of love, right? Yeah. I think I love America, but I'm most critical of her in the same way that James Baldwin used to be at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. And people, if you gotta love James Baldwin, you gotta love the fact that he's gay, right? If you love James Baldwin, you gotta love the fact that he was a 12 year old preacher. Like I have again. I've failed miserably at enough times and still been loved by broken people that I don't have any choice but to demonstrate my love to you is to be critical and be poignant. If I don't, if I ignore you, if I don't pay any attention to you, then you, you should really pay attention at that point. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's yeah. what my, my father used to say. If I don't blank with you, that means I don't like you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Well, and I think that we, and I don't, I don't think we use our platforms uh, in ways that um, make a lot of sense. So, uh, shout out to the Dayton Daily News. Last oh. year, they made me uh, one of their persons of the year. Yep. But who did I put on the front page? Not my relationship with Nan. Not my relationship with the people at Sinclair Community College. I put on my baby brother. I put Todd on there because Todd put me on when nobody knew me in Dayton, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And so we've got to figure out um, why is it okay to use our leverage for the purposes of building each other up, mm -hmm. right? Because if Todd don't win, I don't win. Right. So uh, let's talk about your travel expert before you got grounded here. I yep. mean, so I mean, you've been to Haiti. Yeah. You've been to Switzerland. Yeah, I went to school in Switzerland for four years. What was Whoa, yeah, yeah, four years? What? So let's start there when we get back to Haiti. So let's start in Switzerland. 
Is there any culture shock starting off in Switzerland? No, uh, I, I lived in Geneva, Switzerland. The profound thing about living in Geneva, it was, it was, uh, for the most part, the um, the the New York City of the West. I mean, mm. of of Western Europe. Okay. And so there were a lot of Americans there. The predominant language was French, uh, and so it was like New York off steroids. Uh, I was in school there. Um, my wife was working there. The second two years that we were there, our baby boy, Malcolm, came over, so he enjoyed it. Um, it was the most um, healing time of my life man. to date. That is courageous. Because, that uh, is courageous. Countries, man, and yeah, my, my, yeah, my own, you know, my best friends, they were all former basketball players. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all my guys there to this day, I've gone over there three or four times since. They're all six seven, six eight, six nine, yeah. and I'm the fat preacher that you know we all, <laughs> we all get down that way. Yeah, but I, I think those are the kind of experiences that remind us, particularly as black men, that we have conversations about things other than sports. Right. right? Yeah. So it was good to to live in that environment, to study and read in that environment as well. Um, was there the inherent racism that we feel here, or was it something different in the air there? I think that, you know, I think that there's always a little bit of dis, uh, dissonance and distance um, that uh, persons, uh, Anglo persons, if they if they know uh, who they're riding with, like today. It was, let me answer your question, yes. Yeah. There was some inherent racism there. Yes, you could see some of the different looks in the stores and how people dealt with me. But it's no different than today. Today I'm on the elevator uh, at my condo downtown and I hold the door open for this couple. Now, I should have had my mask on, but I didn't have it in my hand. Um, the guy says, thanks so much. And the, and the woman just bows her head. Now, I'm on the phone, and the guy looks at her, and he hits her. He hits her. He said, what, are you okay? I said, she's holding her breath. And she said, and they got off the elevator quick. You know what I mean? Oh, okay. Like she thought I was going to give her the, the black COVID or something. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Not the regular COVID, the black COVID. <laughs> but you see what I'm saying? But she was holding her breath like if she gets too close to me, she don't know where I've been. You know? Mm. So that, you, and, and I've been in elevators oh. before where people are staring at you, unsure. You've heard the singer Lionel Richie. Um, Lionel Richie was on the elevator with the woman in Vegas. He's headlining in Vegas. A white woman comes on elevator. He's got these two great uh, big dogs that are sitting with them. The white lady's in front of him. And he says, sit. And he was talking to the dogs. The white lady jumped. Please don't shoot, don't shoot on the elevator oh, wow. with Lionel Richie. So, you know, again, you've got to have enough of who you are not to be, you know, particularly bothered by it and laugh but about it. Is that the way that brothers and sisters are treated worldwide, apparently? <laughs> Is this something that the Most High has put on us? Is this a spiritual situation that we're in? Or is it just, what? What is the, like, yeah, I mean, like, from a spiritual perspective, like, what's up with bros and how we're treated all over the world? I think white supremacy um, is a man-made concept that deals with the notion of inferiority. Mm. And if you feel like you can put upon someone, nine times out of ten that you will do that. Mm. I think what I feel that's been interesting about this whole notion of white supremacy is th uh, three things, particularly in these times. 
one, we know that life moves a lot slower than we would ever expect. So the Robert E. Lee statue today in Virginia was taken down. But how, mo how long was it up, right? So uh, uh, history moves at a rate that we don't understand. Mm -hmm. The second thing is every obstacle is an opportunity. So based upon what's inside of you, how do we maneuver in that, both uh, individually and collectively, is up to uh, be defined about how do we put the necessary toolkits, both internal and external of the people, to continue to push forward. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is, uh, and I think this is why this thing called critical race theory is getting so much flack, is that you got to be able to talk about the truth before you can deal with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are so many fictitious lies that are being perpetuated that we never get to deal with the truth of a lot of situations that are taking place in our country and in our world because they are enamored. It is a profit motive mm -hmm. to continue to perpetuate the myth and the lie. Mm. You know, case of point. And, and how you let it affect you is always up to um, your ability to kind of what's going on inside of you. Right. Like for instance, it angers me, but it does, it's not debilitating for me to know that Texas is much like Al-Qaeda in South Africa in the 80s, right? But they also know that's true because by the time my grandson in the third grade gets to be in high school, he'll be part of a, a minority majority. Mm -hmm. So these things are not you know, happening in happenstance. Right. Mm. So you begin to see them for what they are because you do enough of enough reading outside of your own particular genre or vocation to know that the world is tilting in a positive direction. It just goes a lot slower than you can imagine. Um, are you spoken that? Does that make? Yeah. Yeah. Are you spoken that before? Um, it was a post about. Um, are you going in my post now too? Yeah, I, I do my research, sir. I'm telling you, bro, I, I really put a lot into it because I really respect you as a legend enough to to like put put that in there. But like you spoke about how let legends of the past did not care about getting their flowers while they were alive, right? Mm -hmm. These days, it's like, look at me helping this homeless person. I want mm -hmm. you to see me right. They want instant gratification. I think that's a lot of things that like missing from that because, like, for instance, to me, I don't see a Robert E. Lee statue being my attack point. My attack point will be the statues and stuff like that. Like T Tony Ruby, like I always mention every single interview. If you playing, you playing legendary people podcast, put the bingo chip on uh, Tony Ruby. I brought him up again, but he spoke about how. When he got sentenced or, 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 or someone being sentenced, they'll say, what's on this paper is what you get sentenced. They don't care who you are. This paper is what you get sentenced off of. And, and I harken back to the point of like the doctrine of discovery. Anybody out there, do your Googles. The doctrine of discovery is what they use to conquer the United States and most of the world. They say, if you did not believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then they could do anything to you. You are shadow at this point. They did the same thing to the Indians. So that would be what I would attack first. It's not the fact like a statue coming down is not going to change the fact that people still getting shot in the back in the street. You got to attack that paperwork is where you got to attack them at because that's what they're using to lock you up, kill you. And then when they go in there and say, well, um, the the grand jury didn't see a, a lot, you know, like logical reason to pursue this case based off this paperwork. Yeah. So to me, I think we got to tap more back to our old soul of, sacrifice for the greater good and i think what you said right there is a good testament that 
that things are going to get better just based off proxy of us continuing to get better, put more into our children than ourselves. And I think that is a great point that like you made there. Yeah, you know, uh, I think that there's a thing, uh, Doctrine of Discovery, people call it hereditary heathenism. Uh, I think that there are founded discoveries that the social construction with white was cre- created with the advent of Christianity. Absolutely. So it goes together hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Our responsibility is to live with enough integrity as individuals that we can maintain a life for ourselves, those whom we decided to love, those whom we decided to procreate with, mm-hmm. and in a must that we are able to take care of them, continue to stretch our limbs, I mean our arms and our hearts, to help other people. Right. That's rough work, though, particularly in a global globalized world where people are bragging about paying you $20 an hour, well, $36,000 a year after taxes, that don't get you fed. Nowhere at all. Right. So. So, also, so because, for instance, uh, I feel like you have a different perspective than most people because you've actually traveled the world. So, have a global perspective rather than having, you know, you don't live in Dayton. Like, for instance, like, I, I remember I was on a flight somewhere and I ran into somebody from Dayton. You always do that somehow. And they said, Dayton ain't bad unless you've been somewhere else, Right. So, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a real thing. So, how did your global perspective and going to these different places and experiencing different taste palettes of life benefit you as a pastor? Well, I think the, the thing is that you also recognize the currency of what it means to be kissed by the sun across the world. So, as a black man, particularly a black American man, there are these equations with uh, Muhammad Ali, with Martin Luther King, with Barack Obama, you know, there is a sense that I'm bringing to that space optimism. Right. Right. So obviously there's these moments of indifference and racism, but when I'm in forums or talking, people sense that there's an optimism that's there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's why Baldwin moves to uh, France, right? Mm-hmm. That's why you see people go to other countries for different stints because they cannot take just being blanketed in tyranny and oppression psychologically in all different facets of American life. Right. So they go other places. So for me, as a pastor, it reminds me that um, my job is to make sure that this church is Mm self-sufficient, that we're making decided and committed gains in our community. But if you watch me, whether it's Marvin Gaye, uh, I preach prophetic patriotism, the decolonations of our souls. It's also, particularly now in this age of the pandemic, where people from around the world are watching me. It's not just people in the hood. And so we've got to be able to make sense of the world in a way that allows people to draw them closer to God, but also remind them of the, the choices that they have. Right. So I wouldn't have been able to do that uh, unless I had that global, those global opportunities. For instance, when Three months ago, when India was ravaging um, in the pandemic, and people were talking about yep. that. I had one of my very best friends, a guy named Chandra Martin, who is executive director of the Lutheran Federation of Churches in India. He came on the broadcast. And people were like, whoa. And Chandra gets on, he says, Peter, my brother from another mother. Everybody goes crazy, right? Yeah. But there's a sense that... If you go to my church, we're not just going to be locked into what's around us, but we're going to be locked into what's covering us, which is the, the world. Right. So uh, I like to, like, 
compare that to like when Malcolm X took his trip to Mecca. He came back with a whole different global perspective than he did before he went. Yeah. That Malcolm came back a different person that went. Um, it's, it's other things like, it's, it's so much like you've done. I don't think we can even compile it all like completely into this. Like, well, what was up with Haiti? Yeah. So uh, when I first came to the United Methodist Church, there was a sense that one of my dear friends, a shout out to a guy named Tom McCann, one of my favorite uh, people in the world and a very ardent supporter of McKinley United Methodist Church, uh, Anglo male, older. He had built 30 or 40 wells in Haiti. Mm. And he wanted me to go see what the process of that was like. Mm. And I spent a week and a half, probably 10 days in Haiti, really sitting down, talking to people, talking to the leadership, and trying to see. And, and this was really scary, right? If you're a pastor or if you're a humanitarian and you're of Haitian descent and you live in Haiti, you're almost at the beck and call of people. So you're like, um, the world's um, charity case and to see the deflated egos and look at these men who are saying yeah if it wasn't for white charity I couldn't do this I couldn't do that so you know one of the things that we were doing they were very thankful and appreciative of their Anglo benefactors but we're also talking about social business opportunities like you know developing concrete that's available to help people pay roads. Not the paving of the roads themselves, but the going in the expedition of the concrete. Mm -hmm. Like what are some of these social opportunities? So to sit with people in different parts of the world and remember those stories, those stories feed you and they make you present in a lot of ways that you wouldn't be normally. Now you spoke about them building those wells. I, like now I want to think about your church literally ad adopting 100 children in one year. How how did y'all pull that off? So one of the things that we know to be true is 20 years ago when I was in youth ministry, you could stand on the corner and be charismatic and children would follow you back to the church. But now you've got legal rules, you've got insurance complications, you've got uh, every kid's got a cell phone. So we spent a lot of time working with our external partners. So we have something called the Dayton Equity Center www.daytonequity.org, the Dayton Equity Center. And at the Dayton Equity Center, we convene spaces where we work with other partnership institutions. So people like West Dayton Strong, people like Citywide, mm -hmm. these people put us on. And if we, as we were providing resources, they introduced us to kids they've been working with all along. So those things, we find out that we can do more together than we can apart. So we really kind of key in on identifying partnerships. And as a result of some of the work that we did, now we have the uh, uh, Equity Center just started an after-school program called the Daraja Project. Daraja is key Swahili for the bridge, and now we've adopted uh, Roosevelt Elementary School. So now we got 400 kids mm. that we're dealing with directly. Wow! So man. we'll come here and ask Todd for some more ties. I mean, t-shirts <laughs> um, to deal with these young people at Roosevelt Elementary School. Absolutely. Because you know, here's the thing. And I say this a lot in my sermons. I'm going to say it to you so it can stick in your head. It's about 12,000 young people in Dayton Public Schools, right? All of them, not 90% of them, all of them, not 95% of them, 100% of these babies are at free and reduced lunch. Mm. So we don't have a black male problem. We don't have a mentoring problem. We have a poverty problem. Mm. So we got to get the babies fed. 
we got to make sure that the babies got their shirts on because now you find it takes a lot more courage to be a 10-year-old than it does a 25-year-old, right? Right? Because if it snows and they cancel school, you might not get no food. But if it snows and they don't cancel school, you still got to be at that bus stop by 6.30 and it's freezing outside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is not in Haiti. This is not me in the Congo. Right. This is me at Roosevelt Elementary right School. Shout out to Thurm Sampson, you mm -hmm. know, the principal, for yeah. providing us that opportunity. So there's another level of urgency based on what I've experienced around the world to make sure that we can do what we can for our babies. Man. So um, to me, um, I kind of saw a little bit more of that during the pandemic. Like, for instance, like I remember at the last election, which I want to ask you a little bit of your Trump era uh, takeaways. But I remember them saying that like Bernie Sanders was a socialism and this, that, and the third. And but a lot of stuff that's happened was socialistic like ideas of you know like for instance like I have a sufficient household, I can take care of this and the third. They still automatically gave my kids shoes. They they gave us uh uh, uh what's them called like the food cards, EBT card. I, I I don't qualify with my income or the person I was with to get one, but they give them out. It's like, if you have all this money sitting around, where does that money normally go to rather than go going to people that actually need it? You know what I mean? It's like, so so to me, it was more evident that, because I got it and I saw a boost in my lifestyle, even though I was already doing relatively well, I think about the disenfranchised who don't have that. And it's like, it, it, it really sent me on, on like a whirlwind. I mean, like, how do you feel about the pandemic and how they handled the money that they said that they didn't have? So now I'm going to get in a lot of trouble. Uh, I mentioned this off air last Sunday. Um, people are saying, why did they give people $700 a week? Right? And you hear people saying that and they're not going to do it anymore. People need to understand that the objective of the government is to stay in business. So they gave the people enough money to keep the economy back going. Mm -hmm. So now that the economy is roaring again, people be mindful that small businesses are up to $2 million. So there's enough money now washing the economy and these small businesses up to $2 million like this guy that they have a sense of they're not giving you that money and telling you to go to Merrill Lynch to talk about financing. They're not giving you this money and telling you to go to, um, you know, a Wall Street class to talk about how much Apple is sharing, uh, selling for in the market. They're giving you this money to go back into the economy. Yep. They're giving you this money to make sure that the government continues to keep its wheel going. Mm -hmm. What we need to do, particularly in places like the church or places like uh, other social different businesses where people gather, is to remind people um, that money is not the end all to be all. It mm -hmm. is a tool that allows you to get where you need to go. And unfortunately, um, because people haven't had those classes, we continue to keep the machine going as opposed to keep our families going. Okay, which makes a lot of sense, especially because well, on December 13, 2014, you said. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> 2014? 2014. You're going to hold me responsible for something I said seven years ago? <laughs> You're a completely different person right now. It's man. profound what <laughs> yes. he said, though. Go ahead. It's go profound ahead. what he said. If it's good, take credit for it. <laughs> you said, and look, what you said then is relevant today. All right. Yeah. What you said, I put in my back pocket, and I have it here for you today. You said maybe humanity needs to study more about tragic comedians like Richard Pryor and Chris Rock rather than romanticizing less about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. Well, so here's the thing. I named my son after Malcolm. 
But then in my own studies, I, I found out and discovered that Betty Shabazz left Malcolm X three times because he was very difficult to get along with. Mm -hmm. There's something to be said in the tragic comics. Um, uh, there's a book about Richard Pryor called Furious Cool. Furious Cool. I think it's Furious Cool. And talks about just the utter depravity from which Richard Pryor was born in. Mm. And that yeah. each joke, he's literally participating in his own healing. Mm. So I'm saying that we need to look at people who are right in front of us as opposed to the people that we put on these pedestals. pedestals. Um, because we put them on the pedestals because we see them, but we don't know deep down inside we can be them. Mm -hmm. See, my problem is to this day, I think I'm supposed to be one of them, not just see them. Yeah. And I'm willing to make a fool of myself. I'm willing to help more people than I probably should. I'm willing to, you know, put myself in harm risk and lose relationships that were probably once meaningful because I am committed to giving what I received. Right. Um, for instance, I mean, like, that's a great segue to what you just said. Well, you're committed to doing what you receive. Nothing more to me is more than when, like, you lost weight. Like, when you was training with Muhammad Ali's ex-trainer, right? No. Uh, 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 the corner man. What was his name? Uh, Ed? Dundee. Oh, so that's a uh, – uh, Dundee was a uh, uh, a class leader uh, at one of my churches, and he used to call me Muhammad Ali. Oh, okay. We worked out together, okay. yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, so, like, how much weight did you end up losing, like, ultimately – so seven years ago, I lost about almost 70 pounds with hot yoga. Mm -hmm. I've gained yeah. it back now. What is hot yoga? So I used to, you know, practice yoga, meditation, and stretches in a room that was about 103 degrees. So 2014, I did that for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. I've gained it back, but I've just gotten my medical clearances. I'm going to start yoga again next week. So I'm really excited about that. I think what yoga teaches you how to do more than anything is how to be present. A lot of us are not present, right? Even when we're hearing, we're not really listening, which is an active skill. Mm -hmm. So I really want to kind of get back to yoga. Yeah, definitely. So I, I got uh, wanted to ask you about something. Um, I don't know how busy the Most High is, okay? Uh, but it's seemingly that he would be very busy. And for... Everybody who is out here doing their own thing, doing so many different things, I personally have this thought that the Most High allows us to reward ourselves and punish ourselves by what we feel we deserve. And so you kind of like Christ said, you condemn yourself with your own tongue. Mm -hmm. That concept goes a lot deeper as to how the Most High can just uh, – Make us be able to self-govern ourselves without us even knowing. So when you do something that's terrible, that internal clock goes off in you to say, that was wrong. You deserve to be punished for mm -hmm. this thing. And then it manifests itself into your reality. Is this thought, I mean, is, is there some type of, um, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily asking you, is this right? But is this concept... Uh, something that you've heard of before, or is this some type of bi yeah. biblical concept that's th out there? You reap what you sow. Mm -hmm. Malcolm X talks about chickens coming home with the roost. Yep. But then, you know, Stokely Carmichael once asked Martin Luther King, why do we have to be more moral than they are? Mm. Right? So I, I think that there are uh, abundantly clear throughout Scripture and your own life where you see it to live 
with the consequences of your behavior. Mm. I don't think that there is a uh, deterrent um, around that because the Holy Spirit at work in you moves you and guides you to a sense of all righteousness. So when you do something that you know you're not supposed to do, there is a a weighted down guilt. And sometimes people live in dread about what that consequence is, right? Mm. But you also have uh, enough... Um, enough human capacity before you even do those things to kind of think through what your consequences are as well. A lot of people like to make um, God a boogeyman or a boogie person, but we know what Scripture says, God is spirit, and those who worship him, we worship him in spirit and truth. We're not looking for some older person on a throne casting out judgments. It is the active indwelling spirit that's working inside of you that helps you uh, lead in that direction. According to what one believes and not believes in the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, and the New Testament. Uh, you just spoke on people living with dread, and you also spoke about earlier about how, you know, like the Malcolm X and all, they got their own Hall of Fame. We should celebrate the LeBrons of today, right? So one person that you highlighted on your page, um, it, uh, her name was Ray Lewis Thornton, and she has mm. a, a movement called Diva Living With AIDS, right? Um, well. Give us a little bit more insight. Yeah, Ray Lewis Thorne is one of my best friends. She, uh, 30 years ago, contracted AIDS. She was a model who was also um, the, um, one of Jesse Jackson's uh, main campaign persons in his 1984 campaign. Ray found out that she contacted HIV, and it changed her life dramatically. And so for almost three decades, she's been traveling the world talking about how HIV is not something that gay people get or dirty people get. HIV is a real full-blown epidemic that doesn't get talked about much these days, but people are still contracting it because they're not practicing safe sex. They're Mm -hmm. not thinking away through their blood transfusions in ways that are meaningful. And she has, um, she's one of my best friends. She's actually, um, her uh, long-awaited autobiography is called um, Unprotected. Mm. It talks about her life as a young woman um, where she grew up under some very harsh circumstances up to the time that she got aged and called Unprotected. It comes out 2021 on World AIDS Day. So check her out, RayLewisThornton.com. So, um, she's still <laughs> living, Pastor Pete? Yeah. Huh? She's still living. Yep. Yeah. Check she? her out. RayLewisThornton.com. Okay. So, are you familiar with the Lil Baby's comments? Are you, are you even uh-uh. rest of that? So, um, Lil Baby is a rapper from Charlotte. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, well, he's, he's apologizing quick, though, ain't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's apologizing Godspeed. quick. Godspeed. Godspeed. So, I mean, like, how do you feel about his comments? Well, I, I think, again, you, you, um, ignorance is always, you know, shouted from the rooftops, Right particularly when you don't recognize the leverage that you have based on your, you know, when your personality or your celebrity only exists as much as you can spend, as much as you can possess, Mm -hmm. and it does not go into the mythical stature of integrity and courage and love and strength and justice and honor, if if it's all about what you can possess, Mm -hmm. then you have a limited scope and bandwidth. Right. You know, what I think is interesting will be where he is five years from now. Yeah. Um, after he's, you know, seen some um, um, recovery relative, not just his reputation, um, but his payroll. Mm-hmm. You know, I, what I thought was interesting was 
you know, Nick Cannon had a lot of stuff to say about the Jewish community. Heated, right? And in one day, I think that's important, and we can have another conversation about that. But in one day, Viacom mm-hmm. took a billion-dollar operation off the air. Yep. In one day. Yes. So you always say, oh, they're not going to do that, you know, while and now, blah, blah, blah. They took a billion-dollar thing off the air in one day. And but so, I kind of feel like, but, but what does that say about them? And I, I think absolutely. a lot of this stuff becomes hypocritical in the fight that you levy against somebody. So, for example, if I'm ended up getting bullied by the people who are supposed to be getting bullied, it's like you've turned this situation around from being attacked to now being the attacker. And if... And if nobody can say anything about you, nobody can question anything about you, to me, you're putting up some type of facade because no one, no one is without blemish. And anytime that we we start to uh, say, say, like, brothers, we've been through so much stuff, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And Jews done been through their thing, you know, but... I don't know, man. It's just kind of like anytime you say something about anybody that's Jewish, like you're almost not even allowed to say the word. It's like it's so offensive and taken to the to a point where I don't know. It's just kind of like it's almost bullying in reverse to say never say anything about us. And black people kind of got that, too, for real. Like anytime black people are mentioned about like anytime somebody is Dog critical, and anytime, I mean, I don't know. For me, from what I understand, was Nick Cannon was drawing the similarities between blacks in America and the children of Israel, and he thought that we were the children of Israel, mm-hmm. and that we was the tribe of Judah, which isn't a stretch. A well, reach. I'm just saying he ain't the one that thought of this idea. And so I'm just saying for them to just rip him off the air for having that type of thought or he thinks that that's he thinks that's history. And that's what it is for for me, for them to just take away everything that he had worked for, for those type of views. I thought that it was a reverse bullying, uh, you know, and I don't know. I, I, I feel like that. And I think that that's a reasonable thought. No, I, I think the stakes are high, though. I think when, you know, um, the more the higher of the tree you climb, the more your ass shows, right? Yeah. I say that all the time in my staff meetings. Mm. Yeah. And so when you're responsible for a billion-dollar corporation, you've got a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah. And you've got to be continually aware of the slippery slope that you just don't skate on, but you live on and you eat on. Mm-hmm. So you're That's making true. some decisions, right? At any point in time in that 16-year period, Nick Cannon could have said, hey, Diddy, I want to come over to Revolt, right? Right. What are some other black distributors that's going to help me get out what I need to get out? Yeah. Right. He cho- he consciously woke up and chose another path, right? recognizing that there are probably segments of the population that wield a lot of power and influence and put himself in harm's way. What I thought was pretty um, admirable, though, is not only did he go on a tour, but he also began to go on a tour to make sure that everybody that went without got put back on. Right. So yeah. I, I think I'm into 
how he's constructed that space because they kicked Carlos Miller off. I'm a big Wild and Out person. Yeah, I love yeah. But they, they, but they put him back on, right? Mm-hmm. So the same thing that you realize that there are other people who have built their fortresses. Mm-hmm. Um, they have built their nations within nations. And there are any number of rules by which he consciously participated in. Right. That's true. I mean, it's kind of like. It's hard lesson, though. It's, it's, well, what, what you were saying earlier is if you want to have all of these wives, then don't set yourself up in this Western society. You know, like like you're saying. Well, you, you put yourself in a position to you. If you don't like it, you can leave or build your own. But I do see the bullying uh, no, being no, swayed no, the no, other way. No question. But, I, you know, I, I think that there are a number of different instances that are large and small where people would equate America with, with being a bully. Uh, absolutely. Right. Oh, Both historical that. and as of late. You know, if you are finding yourself with your back against the wall, and then your dad has got his back against the wall, and your granddad <laughs> got his back against the wall. Uh, there is a sense that there is something that's being perpetually waged against you, right? Yeah. That's called hegemony. That's another mm-hmm. conversation for another day. Right. Yeah. But if you're in this relationship for 15 years, and you still feel like you are indispensable, what was so dope about it, and I'm just giving shout-out to Viacom, not because I get down with them, but... They took him off the air, and guess what they did? They started playing the Fresh Prince from the first episode because they still they still got somebody else in the hopper. Right, right. I mean, that was like, whoa. Mm-hmm. They said, "We'll show you." We'll, they went this, to the this nigga listens. They went to the <laughs> Let's very play one of these that's niggas a bar, that listen. Bro. That's a bar. We will show you. We'll, we'll no, no, I mean, they just <laughs> they they wouldn't they wouldn't even try. You, you don't have so much content, right? We will cut, yeah, we'll cut you off. We'll have a conversation, but we still got shows to be played. Because yeah. why? TV exists for the commercials. They don't exist for the shows. Yeah, exactly. That's the first thing I notice when I go from Netflix to watch regular TV. I'm like, oh, these things on commercials, but there's only one place in the world that free speech, free speech still exists. That is the barbershop, right? That's the only place we can go in there oh, and we can just ha- have conversations, right? But, um, one thing, that, I mean, because we, we ain't got all day, so I definitely want to run out a couple of your highlights that we're going to do a butterfly fake. He's like, what the hell is a butterfly fake? But anyway, so, uh, <laughs> so um, uh, your 2015 commencement for you, uh, the University of, of Miami. Uh, and so, like, how did that come about? So I was a chaplain at University of Miami in Florida, mm-hmm. and the president was impressed with the way we, uh, I was able to bring young people from a variety of different walks of life together and they asked me to give the invocation at the uh winter uh commencement so i've never it was like twelve thousand people mm-hmm. i spoke for about 30 40 seconds and gave the prayer okay yeah it was pretty dope so also you have it connected to the younger uh, uh people is one of the stories i wanted to bring up which is like the first i wanted to use i'm like i can't i gotta wait later on the story but um you did an orientation <laughs> for the international undergraduates right and you had a, a very crazy story that happened where you pull your phone out and say, everybody add me. And one guy suddenly said, I got three mutual friends with you. And he was from. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, I, I, when, I, when I go to different places with young people, I'm mm-hmm. always trying to compete with my, with my kids relative to what they, how many uh, people I got <laughs> uh, 
on Instagram or how many people I got yeah, on Facebook. On so I always tell them, you know, put your phone in there and add me. And one guy said, how do I have these same friends you have? We just started laughing and we ended up being <laughs> friends as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was dope. So um, I think the actual story is like, he was friends with your son, but like you had met, oh, because wow. like you had went to oh, wow. Africa. Oh, and, and, yeah. So one of the one of the fr- one of the kids that held their phone up is a kid named Tumi. Tumi Lingos. So Tumi was from South Africa. Him and Malcolm, my son, were actually classmates in Switzerland. What? I had no idea that Tumi was at the University of Miami in Florida. And so me and Tumi got to be cool, and he's my son to this day. He's actually a rapper in South Africa. What? So Tumi is doing his thing in South Africa. Shout out to Tumi, man. Shout out to Tumi, baby. Shout out to Tumi, man. That's crazy. So uh, another dope story was uh, 2016, you got inducted to the Hall of Fame for your high school. Right. Uh, walk us through that, because like that's where I found out that like you had limited motor skills, because I'm like, this basketball standout, and then you had put it in the comment section, like, yeah, and I did all this with limited motor skills. Yeah, I mean, I think part of the thing was a repetition. I, you could not beat me to the gym, man. I was I was a gym rat, and uh, I told you I played basketball as a freshman in high school, and I think about 2015, that was right around, like, two or three days either before or after my dad died, they called me and let me know I got uh, installed in the Hall of Fame at my high school at Seven Hills. Mm-hmm. And so that was a big deal for me. I, I went there, I was all cool, calm, and collected, and I didn't cry. Uh, until one of the kids was talking about how the power of social mobility and that my high school um, was kind of the the fuel and the engine that the, the family that I had built this car and my education was the fuel. And, you know, I've been all over the world with that private school education. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Mama Love again. Shout out to Mama yeah, Love. Man. Walk us through you mending that fence with your father, because I'm pretty sure, like, that's a monumental part for me, because to me right now, um, you know, like, my father, he lives in Dayton, you know what I'm saying, shout out to my dad, you know what I'm saying, we done mended our fence recently, um, it was actually at my son's birthday party, so me reading this, it kind of got me a little, you know what I'm saying, I mean, I'm tough today on camera, but. His eyes is glassy, y'all, we ain't gonna make him (laughs) cry today, his eyes is glassy. But to me, to. To see that, it made me know where I did not want to have to mend minds on his deathbed. Yeah, you know, the thing about me and my dad, man, is I got old enough, and guess what, man? I saw him in me. My mouth is slick. I flirt too much sometimes. I got a short temper. And I can, I say, I laugh about it now. Um... I got to calm myself down because my dad had a really quick temper. Like, he would go from zero to 100. Like, my, 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 my youngest son goes from zero to 80. And so I started seeing myself in him. And I was like, wow, you, you okay with you doing you but not him? Right. So I had to lose that sense of that judgmental attitude. And probably two, three months before he died, I flew out to California. And we just hung out for a week while he was on his deathbed. Um, shout out to my mama, Juanita, my stepmom, for giving me that time. And we had a lot of powerful conversations, a lot of laughter, a lot of tears. And um, I appreciate the creator giving me that opportunity to make yeah, that reconnection. Man, that is really that cool, is, man. Yeah, I, I took some notes. You know, I got some journal entries um, around that, too. But I wanted to be whole, right? And so I consider myself a whole individual because... I, if I see a hole in it, 
uh, I want to be whole, W-H-O-L-E, and I'm going to try to pursue that to mm. the best of my ability. In full recognition that I'm not perfect, right? And I learned how to be okay with not being perfect for my father. When you when you actually got out got to go out there and spend that time with him, could you sense that he was proud of you? Oh, absolutely. Mm. He's, he's always been, you know, you know, pops. You know, we always take credit for stuff we ain't do, mm-hmm. things we ain't <laughs> discover. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. He was taking credit for. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, he was taking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, because because you know, my father was a writer. Um, he did some plays. He wrote plays and all wow. that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he had a you know a sense of being you know ridiculously charismatic. He had long fingers and you know all that kind of stuff was quite helpful to help him kind of project the image of manhood yeah. that he wanted to project. And so we've got a lot, a lot of similarities. And so when I embrace those as opposed to running to them, I recognize I can embrace that and still be my own person. Yeah. So what did that do for you when it came to you processing a lot of things that happened to you in your life, especially when you had to go sit on that couch and talk to so every Thursday at 2.45, I go see my therapist who I've known since high school. What was that conversation like after you came back? Uh, the biggest thing was to him, he was reminding me of what does it feel like to look at yourself mm-hmm. and not be judged? Mm. How do you begin to have the questions in my father's absence? Can I have those conversations internally? Mm-hmm. And so now I'm not talking to him like he's an extra um, terrestrial. But I, I am having a conversation with him relative to how he guides me, particularly around my anger issues. And it's not that about wanting to repeat the, the same mistakes, but learning from him in such a way that I can be the next evolution. And I think that's the best way to honor him. So I spent a lot of time talking to my father with my self-talks, you know, kind of seeing where he was, asking why he made some of the decisions that he made, and then beginning to spend some more time um, with his brother um, that helped me uh, this April actually went down to where I'm from in Mississippi and actually was digging in the dirt of the plantation that they were born on. Mm-hmm. So those kind of things really helped me. You know, I could feel that even if I close my hands now to pick the cotton that they picked, right. you know, to feel that dirt in my fingernails, those things are important, um, not just for sermons but for living. When you went and you talked to your dad, did you guys – Talk about some of the things that bothered you. Oh, absolutely. So, so y- y'all yeah. got into that? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, because he wasn't talking to my, his brother at that point. I made him talk to his brother. Here's a great story to tell you real quick. Um, he raised one of my cousins. So I called my cousin. My cousin is named, I'm going to call him Bob. I'm not going to embarrass him. Shout out to Bob. And he, my cousin Bob was saying, Uncle Jimmy Dale, I miss you. And he said, yeah, boy, I, I know. Did I teach you? I teach you about Jesus. Yes, Uncle Jimmy. Did I ta- you taught me about Jesus? He said, "Did he say yes, Uncle?" He said, "Well, he said, well, blankety 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 blank. I need you to pray." He said, "Huh?" He said, "I need you to pray." So my cousin started praying. I'm holding this phone right here. I'm holding it like this. He's praying, and he says, "Amen." And he says, "Blankety blankety blank. That's all you got. That's all you got." He on his deathbed. That's it. That's it. Pray again, fool. Pray again. And guess what my cousin did? He prayed again. So it let me know, like, he liked me, right? That's something I would do to sled, right? Like, and I put that in my eulogy, right? 
You know, he was rolling. I mean, like he was deadly serious and funny all at the same time. He cussed him out and made him pray again, bro. That's hilarious. Oh yeah, it's funny. And even though it was obvious he was just he was being funny, Cuss took it seriously oh, enough to man. pray again. He he prayed again, <laughs> calling calling on demons and you know what I mean? It was funny. That so, is a great story, bro. So here at the Legendary People Podcast, he had a thing called the Butterfly Effect. You've been waiting this whole time, right? Where yeah. basically where something I found that was profound during your interview, which was too much to even name here on this one podcast. Mm. Or something I found that was truly profound during the course of this interview. The very first thing that I want to um, say is that seeing you go to these different churches that don't have this, you know, you call them Anglo churches, you know what I'm saying? But they're under the same, you know what I'm saying, like denomination. Um to, to see you go around and and bridge the gap, as you said, I, I cannot think of the word like you said there, but to bridge that gap to me is, is to me is very important because, like you said about, and hey, none of that would have been possible without the people that we be saying are the oppressors, right? Um, another thing that I thought was even more more profound was like it's in your work as well, such as you had the one post where it's like you said a pastor, a priest, and a rabbi became friends. Right. To me, it's like people find so easy to nitpick your religion, your religion, your religion to the point where where do we all convene? Where do we all agree? Where is that bridge to see you doing that, to see you have a church and you put it together? You have a thousand at this point, probably a thousand kids like adopted. You have uh, uh, what else? So. uh Your testimony also will be something like this to the point of. That a person's not judged based solely off what they do in life. It's based off you doing something for someone else and you don't expect anything else in return. That- yeah, it's interesting you said that. Uh, I, I spoke at a, a Pepsi plant in Atlanta mm-hmm. and I got finished speaking, and the, um, the frontline workers came up to me. They were shaking my hand. I had a book out at the time, I was giving them the book. And um, the brother said, You got to come back, Rev. You got to come back. I said, well, man, you know, I live in Switzerland. I said, no, man, we're going to make sure. Our union going to make sure you come back. I said, why? What's going on? He <laughs> said, because you flew in, in Caucasian. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I, and I, you know, and I just saw my whole life come full circle mm-hmm. that people can sense my soul is with them, mm-hmm. but they respect the fact that I can help them go to another space, right? Man. And, and I think that, again, shout out to my, my stepfather, shout out to my mom, shout out to my godfather, and all those people that help kind of build this work. But it's lonely, though, right? So this work is lonely, but you sense that there's something about yourself that ultimately you're being put here for a larger purpose, right? right? And so I, I think that, for me, my purpose is to be mindful of the fact that we really want to kind of pull all these different shreds and threads of humanity together. Now, for me, I'm emphatic about wanting to make sure they're understood in a black-owned space. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I'm not partial to that. Um, I, I pastor a church now in Oakwood. Some wonderful people were learning about each other and God together and what does that mean, how they understand that they're supposed to be an instrument of justice and mercy and that kind of stuff too. But for me, we really want to make sure um, that the least of these have a voice, you know, you know, power to the people. For me, that's that's not a slogan. It's like 
What are the instruments by which we actually give people the power that is inherently theirs? Right. Right. right? And we and we work on that and we press towards that. I, I think that what people have to understand though, if you're gonna be in the business of making humanity human again, have a strong foundation. Hmm. Be prepared to be lonely and then get to work. Right. Um and also, like the second portion of that is also, uh, you know, sort of like the butterfly effect portion of it is, you having a person of a different color calling you my brother. They're gonna get you to see the light in you. They're gonna see light in others shine off of them. Just like when we had Tony Rubin here, guest appearance again, of him literally, um, the judge invited him for a handshake after he sent this man to prison. And he came out, and now they are the best of friends. I ain't the best friends, but they are friends enough to where he made a change in that person's life. What you are doing is going to affect the person behind you. Just the same way you always said was you want someone who is going to be the Malcolm X, yeah, that's cool, the, but the worst is somebody there because what you're doing is exactly what you want it to be, where you're doing something so selfless that it's going to actually benefit the whole and not just yourself. And it's the soul language, too. There's a young brother at my uh, church uh, in Oakwood. His name is Gavin. We were, I was doing some, he was with his mother in Bible study. He might be 10 or 11. And we were writing something on the board, and I made a basketball example. And one of the guys in the Bible study said, of course, Jordan is the best player. And Gavin was like, nuh-uh. Kareem is the best player. Mm. And ever since then, I called this 11-year-old Anglo boy Kareem. Mm. And we're having another conversation yeah. by me doing that that nobody else is having. Right. Yeah. Wow. You see what I'm saying? I'm speaking to his soul in a way. And every time he sees me, he hugs me. He wants to know how can, right? And that is the, you know, when you bring him on 20 years from now, that is going to be the first inflection point, right? One of my favorite people in the world is Sting. I love Sting's music, right? Sting, you know who the first black person Sting saw? Jimi Hendrix at a pub. So Sting sees Jimi Hendrix and never is the same after that, right? Right. So there are these chance encounters that are ultimately ordained by the creator that puts you on another cycle of which you enlarge your territory. You just got to be faithful to it. Speaking of being faithful and meeting the artist for the first time, you met India Irie. What was that like? <laughs> so, so he ain't even leaving me nothing to come back with. Yeah. Um, so I was at a concert. Um, my wife and I were at a concert. India uh, Irie was singing my favorite song. He is the truth. He is the truth. He is so real and love the way. So she was going like this, and I said, she's pointing at me. Now she whispered to me, I ain't gonna tell you what she said. She whispered up, she whispered, my wife whispered to me, she's like, Negro, and everybody now always looking at you. So I stepped out, we were in the third row, I stepped out, and I'm still going like this. And before it's over, I walk all the way out in front of about 7,000 people, and she sang the whole song to me. And people were taking my camera and taking pictures of what I, and I use this as an example. I use this as an example. Here's the example, here's a bar. You got to know that you belong on stage. That is cool. Nostalgia alert. Nostalgia alert. You got to know you belong on stage, right? Yes. Yeah. You got you, If you don't know it, right. 
Yeah. Ain't nobody gonna put you up there. Yeah, right. I knew she was looking at me, right? Yeah. Maybe she was, maybe she was. But I, I, I know I belonged on stage. Right. And if you don't have if you don't have that level of certainty, if you don't have that level of commitment to yourself, hey man, this world's gonna swallow you up. Absolutely. Man, uh in in our closing, like to me, I, I see it more and more everybody that we have on here, bro, is just more genius. And then, I mean, but, like, bro, we really have greatness in here, bro. And that's not to uh, blow smoke. Right. But I am really, oh really God. thankful, bro, yes. for you to come here and just build with us. Yeah. I mean, man, Pastor Pete. I. You're my guy. Man, I love you, bro. Yeah, you're my guy. No yeah. question. You're my guy. Yeah. Like, you a big dog, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, accept it, man. You're a big dog. <laughs> accept it, man. It's going well, it. well, you know what? Let me say this. Let me say this. Which is, which is, which is a great man. segue. He just, yeah, you. Well, well, Pastor Pete, I appreciate that. This you know. is Pastor Pete. I tapped into one of his sermons on Facebook one time, and he talked about the impo imposter complex. Yeah. The I got that that's from Pastor Pete. That's why I learned it from from you because you got well. The thing about it is, like, it's gonna be hard for him to accept this thing that he's great because he has he's he's he hasn't been perfect, right? But it's not about that. Like, you can't give up greatness because it's not perfect. Right. Don't throw out great or don't throw out good because it's not perfect. Right. And mm. I just man like. I don't know, bro. Like, it is so amazing. Amazing. Like, you're validating our show. Yeah. You come in here and you share your story. And for whatever reason, now you're taking me to the next level. Absolutely. By you just even coming through right. so and chopping me, up with us, bro. Let me like, just say this real quick. So, you got the fourth poorest city in America, perhaps on the fourth on one of the top five poorest streets in America. Mm. And unbeknownst to yourself, you decide, I'm gonna do something that people are gonna make fun of, but I'm gonna make a market niche for myself around crowns and basketball, and you build a million, a million dollar business. Mm -hmm. Now, what people don't understand is, all the nights you cried by yourself, all the money you gave away initially that you lost, all the money you borrowed that you know that you're not getting back, and you've cultivated a brand for yourself. Now, the next set of decisions are, how do we take care of myself to be able to manage not what's there, the next step. Yeah, which is to lead, right? And so that's part of my problem too now, that we got about 30 plus employees at McKinley I've been doing I've been doing good at taking care of other people's greatness. I've been doing well at, you know, managing other people's needs or starting things up. But do I have enough sense of self-worth in myself not to manage but to lead? Yeah. Which is to go out there and dream in new ways of things that have not been thought of yet, but the creator's put it inside of me to bring it into existence. Which is definitely This is, this is what you have done now, right? Mm. So we sh we know for sure and you've already started with relative to distribution, but that there should be a t-shirt kings in every, you know, every hood in America. Mm. Yeah. That's why I was saying this watch this. That's why I was saying I was trying to bring y'all to have the show at the church 
because it needs to be a space that's sacred for you to have this same kind of conversation to bridge the gap, right? People don't feel like they can come to church because they're scared of being talked about or ridiculed or whatever. But you can say shit, damn, and some other stuff on the air and not... I was waiting for the lightning to come. The lightning didn't come, right? But, you, but you're able to have these authentic and real conversations. And if we're really going to take turn thugs around and give them an opportunity to really reconsider what this thing is as opposed to flipping these corners or flipping these houses, it's going to be these kind of partnerships that take place. And those partnerships only come together out of love. Yeah, They only come together out of love because um, if they're transactional, there's never enough money I can pay you back for what you've done for me. Mm. And vice versa. There's just not enough money. Right. So it, it becomes transactional. Well, we, I don't even think we want we but you see what I'm saying? Money but from each other. Right, right. Like, yeah. really, like, like, I don't know. Right. But that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. for me, I, I, I can't, I want, I really, there's very few people that say this. I really do want everybody to win, though. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I really do want everybody to win. There were three things that I took away from this more than anything. One, what you said, put human back in humanity, man. Like, right. That's really profound. Another thing I found that was interesting was that, uh, you played 2K as well. You know what I'm saying? I didn't know that. I didn't play 2K oh, in a minute. Well, one thing that me and Patrick well, It's going to last 30. We love basketball, bro. We love basketball. We blow each other up oh, in the yeah, playoff yeah, times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, during the NBA championship, <laughs> me and bro, we texted each other. We blow we each other up. We about to win it all. Yeah. <laughs> And, we, and we, you got to bring me back for the conversation about the Lakers. Oh, I'm an yeah, old time yeah, Lakers on, fan. You know that. Yeah. You don't like the Lakers? Oh, yeah, yeah you do. I'm Brian Brown. I'm Brian Brown all day. It's one last thing that I want to lead uh, off with. Yeah. Uh oh, here he goes. You yeah. did November 27, 2014. You posted. What is with 2014? You was wrong in 2014. I don't know what you were doing. <laughs> because you said. You ain't chilling for Thanksgiving, man. What is wrong with you, man? Oh, man. Chitlins is a Negro delicatessen, bro. <laughs> I, 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 look, I look, 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 look. I tell people all the time. I said, the pig is a filthy beast, man. It's dangerous. It's, it's dirty. It's abominable. It's horrible. It's nasty. The pig is just disgusting. I do not eat pork. But I love some chili. That's all. That's it. Yeah, man. That's it. Anything? It's your boy Dash Resource, aka Peanut. I'm here every Sunday, eight o'clock p.m., where I teach sales stocks not dope. Where I teach people easy ways of making money when it comes to selling stocks. My book is for free on Amazon. If you guys need help with that, make sure you DM me. You guys. Go to Sheik's for breakfast, man. You got to go to Sheik's for bre breakfast. Visit my bro, Ron C. I think they open from like 8.30 to uh, maybe 2.30. They got the best breakfast in the city.